0: The New Beverly Presents The Pure Cinema Podcast So, we went to a little theater That is our sponsor, uh, our partner last night they opened for the first time in almost a year yeah
1: you know what's crazy about that I was thinking is because we're going to be uh talking about film discoveries you know later in the show uh and I realized this will probably be one of the first years where almost none of those discoveries come from going to the theater because the theater was in fact closed uh I think actually one of them does come in a roundabout which is kind of remarkable just from programming that I remembered which is kind of fun but uh, so that's so that's like mildly heartbreaking and then also uh incredible that it's open and it was super fun. I had a great night. Uh It was a blast. Got to see uh, our double feature our uh uh, what's the first one called again? I keep getting the prequels. Butch and
0: Sundance, the early years, directed by Richard Lester, starring Tom Barringer and William Catt in the lead roles.
1: Yeah, which is, uh, I was really surprised, because hey, I, I won't lie, like when we when they first were talking about that programming, I definitely would have fallen into the camp who's like, I just want to watch Butch again, you know, Butch and Sundance, because I hadn't seen in a long time, and it's going to be a great print, and, you know, I'm a little hesitant to watch something before that that's going to color that experience, but it's a really fun and charming film and definitely gets the voices of those two characters uh, pretty damn close Um, and playful you know
0: yeah yeah I mean obviously you know the Paul Newman and Robert Redford performances are two for the ages but the Behringer cat chemistry was good and there was a lot of great cast surprises including Peter Weller in a really early role as uh, somebody who's uh, hot on their trail the whole time and then what brian dennehy i mean there was just a bunch of people that popped up that just made it really fun
1: yeah and it, it just i mean richard lester is an interesting director because i always think his films have a lot of energy even when they're not good films they have a lot of energy. I, I love petulia the way that movie's made is really interesting to me but um, so i thought i thought it really moved and i actually was really surprised by behringer and cat and they just kind of their chemistry and there's moments like i said to you afterwards there's weird uncanny moments where behringer in the right light kind of really kind of looked like Newman, which just makes no sense to me, because those two actors (laughs) have nothing in common as far as my brain. Um, And I thought William Gatt was actually really good. Um, I had a lot of fun watching that, but then we watched, oh my god, the most pristine, perfect print of uh, Butch Cassidy. I mean, I think it had never been played before. Is that what we were hearing?
0: I mean, that's, you know, it's possible. If it had been played, not a lot by a long shot. It would have looked beautiful. It just looked beautiful. And I had forgotten about the sepia sections and... um, Oh, the opening of the movie
1: took my breath away. I got to say, honestly, like I was just kind of like, just when the opening credits end and you're just in the sepia-toned Western... And it just, I don't know, it kinda, I kind of held my breath a little bit watching that because I, I just feel like I hadn't really seen. It kind of reminds me of seeing a nitrate screening or something. It just felt unique. Uh, and, man, it's just their chemistry is great. The, the, the dialogue, the William Goldman dialogue is one of the best written films out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the two of them, it's, it's one of the great movies. We were just saying to each other afterwards, you watch one of those every once in a while and you, you're kind of aware of it. But then you, you see it again and you're just like, damn. That's that's what it is. That's what that kind of thing looks like. And that's what it feels like. And that's the humor and the chemistry that the two have is just so absolutely perfect. It's it's amazing.
1: And a last minute uh, MVP of that movie is that, that both of us had kind of forgotten he was in it is uh, another PCP favorite Struther Martin. Um, yes, who just comes in in the Bolivia section. And he's only in there for probably 10 minutes, but <laughs> he was so much fun in there, just like he is in everything.
2: Morons. I've got morons on my team.
1: Uh, what Loved a, him. What a great Loved actor. Uh, but, you know, it's fun. Like, for the so people who are in LA, obviously, it, it's particularly noteworthy because, you know, the new Bev was down for. An entire year I noticed a lot of little things you know I gotta say like uh, well one of the things I liked most was going to the bathroom and having the sound system <laughs> jacked through funny. I know I don't know it, but it's like the sound systems jacked into the bathroom now so you're actually hearing the trailers you're hearing what's going on in the theater in a sense so that's kind of cool because that way you know what's uh, you know what's happening uh, if you're missing out on anything that was uh, something you noticed pretty early but the floors were done and there's a lot of cosmetic change you know shifts that just cl- it felt like a nice facelift very, very well is, yeah and, uh, the, and the sound
0: system is better than it's ever been it sounded great and yeah just like new poster frames just like little things that for film geeks like us are just like damn that looks nice you yeah, know, yeah. Um, I the tra- it was, it track was, lights
1: in the aisle, like the, just little know. stuff, and the color palette of the whole kind of section. So I think for people like us who, you know, and and I, it doesn't just mean New Beverly. Like you're local, it's like any any cinema that means a lot to you in your in your town. You know, it's it's always exciting. The this kind of cosmetic work sometimes to me is a sign of, like, we're gonna be here another forty years. That's you know I like that feeling. Yeah, that's that gets me excited.
0: Yeah, and we we had some people that I think were a little concerned that the show is going to turn into the new Beverly Show or whatever. And I mean you know that's part of what we're doing, but obviously, for instance, the calendar episode is really as we might have said at the beginning, it's just about movies. I mean it's about that theater specifically, but what what it's about too is encouraging you to a um, think about the movies that are being paired, but also think about a rep theater that you may have near you. Um, you know, maybe it's time to go and support that if you haven't, and I know that there will be a lot of people that don't, and that's, you know, too bad, and we certainly count ourselves lucky to have theaters like the New Beverly close by, but that's not meant to be a slight to anybody else out there. It's it's more just to support them, but also to facilitate a greater conversation about movies that are sound like a good time to see.
1: Yeah, and the celebration of like celluloid—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really. I mean, I was sitting in the theater just having, having that feeling I hadn't had maybe in a few months. You know, where you're just like, I uh, there's something really special about. Seeing something on film, something communal, and when it's a great print, and obviously you know prints now, especially at theaters, are going, repertory theaters are going to be a mixed bag, of course, you know. But when we're watching a pristine, and I'm, and we're not just saying pristine as in it looked really good, it it looked perfect, which is crazy because you just really don't see things like that very often. Um, there's just moments in that movie where I was like, oh wow, this is really special. Still, there's still something special about the experience of going to a movie with a bunch of strangers sitting in a dark room and seeing something that is beautiful because light is going through film and projecting it. And it's it's just uh, teaching. I'm more aware of it now than I was when I was growing up, obviously, because we grew up in a different era. But teaching younger people now who don't have that experience, who may never have really experienced or thought about celluloid, uh, it's just different you know it's not it's not better well i do think it's better to an extent um when it works but i mean it's not to take away from people who uh won't watch films that way um and would rather just watch them on their home setups but i do think it's still a really unique experience and you know that we're lucky that we get to do it with you know a place we love
0: yeah, no, and, and there was a great pre-show for both the movies. They included uh, vintage commercials. They included uh, a great Bugs Bunny cartoon, a Western one um, that was a lot of fun. And I think that's the kind of thing that I used to do um, when I was quote-unquote programming our Friday movie nights at home. I'd find trailers that would play with it. And I think that's another thing that's fun to encourage people to do is when you – have your movie night with your family, your friends, whatever, make it an event, you know, like pull together um, some things that get you in the mood for the movie, be it trailers, you know, or whatever. Um, That kind of thing really plays into the overall experience and you don't need to have a repertory theater to do that. Um, Of course, it is great when you do, but but I think that that sort of positive uh, vibe that you can bring to this sort of movie watching is just great for everybody, you know?
1: Yeah and, and again we're talking about why it's special in in this post uh, now we're a couple of days uh, since Filmstruck uh, shuttered and of course we're hopeful that the Criterion channel will kind of you know pick up that slack Obviously, it's not the same and a lot of people who are excited about it Like but a lot of really cool voices who are programming that are now You know unemployed and not part of that channel and we don't know which libraries they'll have but uh, You know, it's it's curation. That's still the key thing here that that thing that makes it special You go to a cinema like the new Beverly and they somebody is choosing movies somebody is choosing cartoons Somebody's choosing trailers to show you and that is the thing that that's missing when films are just dubbed or uploaded or here's, you know, a hundred new titles. It's a totally different experience. And it's something I yeah, really or, cherish, you know,
0: absolutely. Or algorithmed or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that stuff is, is just, I don't know. It's too bad. It's too bad. But thankfully we're here to maybe help you point you in the direction of movies like that, you know, <laughs> that are curated by us, uh, but also to just encourage you to do the same for yourself and, uh, always keep the human element sort of in, in the spirit of movie watching. I think that's the core of it. That's the heart of it, you know?
1: Oh, and I guarantee if you don't live in LA and you listen to the calendar episodes, we will direct you to a film or the new Beverly will direct you to a film that you will, you know, love and you'll be shocked and you wouldn't have discovered any other way. So I think that is worth it alone. So, uh, so that's where we are. We are very lucky. So welcome back new Bev. Uh, we're very pleased to have it back in the city after one year. Um, All I got to say now is let's get physical. (laughs) <laughs> it's gonna happen every episode just so you know it is again never going away I love it, I love it. <laughs> even if you mock um, me by playing uh cheesy music after it I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna persist like Sisyphus I'm pushing this one until it's catching because uh, <laughs> I can't say just yes. the discs I can't no, I no. can't I can't just <laughs> so I'm going let's get physical
0: I think let's I think let's get physical is great um yeah you had the idea of going along with this film discoveries thing um, what was our favorite physical release of the year blu-ray release of the year and we each came up with uh, one pick just to talk about and but you know (laughs) we could talk about a lot of stuff it's been a great year for physical media for the kind of movies that we talk about on this show so, um, picking one was, was not easy necessarily, but
1: yeah, we could do a crossover on just the discs, maybe where we, we could count down five after this and, and, you know, another episode that might be cool. Um, because I don't want to take away from, uh, you know, that is the theme of that show. So I feel like we should, uh, keep some of that good stuff there, but, uh, but yeah, just to even throw one at you just because mostly because you're also in the, it's kind of getting close to Christmas shopping. Uh, this might tip someone over the edge to buy this one, uh, disc for that significant other uh, let's start with you because uh, I don't know if I know what your pick is. I know you know my pick.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it, I th- I think we're going to have some similarities um, in terms of where this is coming from. But I am a huge fan of the Indicator Series label from the UK. It has come up on the show a little bit. Uh, it comes up on just the discs a lot. Uh, They are one of my favorite labels running right now, and they've only been at it a very short time, relatively. But they have put out some incredible box sets this year. Uh, William Castle box set I really liked, and maybe something you're going to talk about. But the one for me that won them all was their Five Tall Tales Bud Bedeker and Randolph Scott box set. And that includes five films. The Tall T, Ride Lonesome, Decision at Sundown, Comanche Station, and Buchanan Rides Alone. And those are five great movies. And another thing I love about Indicator is that they are true film fans in terms of the extras that they bring to these. And it's, you know, like they bring people like Kim Newman and a a lot of the, there's some podcast people that Bill, our friend Bill Ackerman has talked to on his show Supporting Characters that have become, you know, major players in the commentaries, Cat Ellinger and... Sam Deegan and a whole bunch of others. Anyway, uh, this set is just incredible. I I was on the Wrong Real podcast uh, earlier this year to talk about Bedecker and Randolph Scott. And we sort of skirted around this box set that was, you know, part of the impetus for that episode and me going on that show. But this is just a great set. I mean, these five movies. I think you and I both agree uh, are some of the better westerns of the nineteen fifties. Um, I know you are a big Bedeker fan yourself. I
1: mean, I saw most of those. I, I just got lucky, you know, pretty young to see a bunch of them on, um, you know, in a retrospect of his work. And I don't think I've seen many of his. I don't think I've seen any of the westerns again since then. I, I, I've obviously been recommending *Killers Loose* a lot from Noir in the last couple of years. And um, what's the last movie he he made? A final movie about a bullfighter. Um, It's the last thing he did in his career, and it was a really interesting movie. Kind of like, yeah. Um, I think, I don't even remember if it was a documentary or if it was a semi-narrative. But anyway, he's he's a really interesting filmmaker, really interesting. I, I, the thing I was wondering from you, though, with this box set, is there one that, like, watching them together again, is there one that stands out for you? It, especially if somebody is, like, jumping in kind of new to Buttocker.
0: Boy, that's tough. Um, Definitely... I think the two. There's two. Uh, I like all these movies, but I think "The Tall T" and "Ride Lonesome," especially, really exemplify what it is that he does with Randall Scott and with Bert Kennedy, the screenwriter, who he did a lot of work with. They're very economical in terms of the storytelling, but they are just really effective western tales.
2: Been looking to find you, Billy. I know. Been seeing your dust for three days. I figured it better to let you catch up and have it out and over. The others, where are they? Oh,
3: they went on ahead. I told them I'd be alone. After I buried you.
2: Get on your Billy. we're going back. Now you know I can't do that
4: anything you can look forget if I was to ride south with you there's them and see me hang
2: you left a dead man in the street in Santa Cruz it's a fair fight he was killed from behind like the others I don't know how much they're paying you to bring me in but it ain't enough not near enough I'd hunt you free let's go yeah.
4: I guess that kind of makes me a liar, don't it? Them boys didn't go ahead. They're scattered, all in rocks. No way for you to get out of here. Look, gate I got no quarrel with you.
2: Now, if you used to get on your horse and ride out of here, I'd forget all about this whole thing. Look, what's one more bounty to a man like you? Money's got blood on it. Today we're going on back. You don't understand. I give the word. You're dead. Maybe, but before I hit the ground, I'll blow you half in two. You're blushing. Am I?
3: Call them off, Billy. Hold your fire, boy. It ain't gonna work. I knew I should have done it my way. In the back.
0: Hey, Charlie! And they have a certain amount of danger and suspense to them that feels real in a way that I I feel is a little bit more. It's grittier, sort of. Than uh, some of the other ones, you know, that I've seen from this period, but yeah, there's something about Randolph Scott. Uh, he is just—I don't know—he's just really incredibly perfect for the kind of roles that that sort of fill in these movies. He, they're—it's just one of the great director-actor pairings, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, I don't know. I—I I think Tall T and Ride Lonesome. Either one of those, you—you you couldn't really go wrong. Um, these discs include some, like, appreciations, too. Like, uh, I want to say Clint Eastwood talks about some of the other... He talks about Comanche Station. Martin Scorsese talks about The Tall tea and Ride Lonesome.
4: The idea in Ride Lonesome, uh, this loner, and, and uh, Scott uh, plays it so perfectly. I find that I uh, use this particular film as a reference to a lot of younger actors in certain pictures i made uh, particularly, um, the departed and a number of other pictures where the people find themselves alone in a certain world and universe and everybody's against them, so to speak. Uh, the loner, I mean, in a way, is really essential to the history of the Western. He's out there in the wilderness, he's making his way in his own. And so you have to ask yourself how central it is, really, as Americans, to the history of this country, the idea of the loner. It's because it's a big part of our mythology, our idea of ourselves as Americans. and And obviously, it's there in the, you know, Melville, the greatest. Moby Dick being the first and most famous example to come to mind, it's um, central to the Westerns and and just as central to urban stories like Offhand, On Dangerous Ground, Nick Ray's film, for, for instance, or um, a picture I made, Taxi Driver, that Schrader wrote. And Of course, uh, most stories of loners are also about their struggle to fit in the, with the community or to, to come to terms with the community, overcome some kind of hurt or loss. And... That's one of the elements that's so powerful in Ride Lonesome. Scott is a, a bounty hunter who's getting revenge on the man who hanged his wife. And it's pretty close to The Naked Spur by Anthony Mann with Jimmy Stewart, where Jimmy Stewart is hunting down the man who killed his brother. But of course in both films, the heroes come to the understand, to understand and this is the key, they come to understand the toll and the price of vengeance, the toll it takes on them.
0: Uh, Taylor Hackford talks about Decision at Sundown and Buchanan Rides Alone. So you get, on top of like commentaries and little documentaries, it's just it's an incredible set. It's like, if you're a Western fan or if you're just getting into Westerns, I feel like it's a great set to kick off uh, sort of discovery of the 50s Westerns. Because I feel like there's a lot of people that know a few of them, but... These are the ones that will push you in the direction of finding more and more. I mean, even if you don't just stay within the Baedeker canon, you're in great shape. But anyway, amazing set. And
1: once you finish those five films and you start jonesing for more, you then get Ride the High Country. Because uh, it really is a nice connector, Peckinpah's yeah. film that we discussed uh, in one of our later episodes. But it really feels like, it feels connected. It feels like he's doing... Buttocker a little bit, you know, it's somewhere in between the two, but also it's just another great role, um, which, you know, kind of getting to play, uh, you know, a guy with a little more edge, which is nice.
0: Yeah. It's, we talked about it in in the cult movies three episode, Mm -hmm. I think, uh, where it's another Randolph Scott kind of, uh, twilight of his career kind of Western he and the great Joel McRae who did a ton of great Westerns too, by the way. And, and I think, is less known for that stuff Um, but he's just a great actor all around I love Joel McRae as well and they together are fantastic so yeah I totally agree
1: um, so yeah, without a doubt, the release of the year is Dark of the Sun because it has a commentary <laughs> by us. Uh, no, <laughs> yep. But we should plug that uh, yeah. because we haven't actually received our copy, so we can't really speak to. Uh, I know it's shipping to places, but uh, should
0: be should be with us this week, I think.
1: The great Larry Karazuzki and Josh Olson uh, are take the lead on the commentary. I would say. Uh, and then we're, we're there in support. <laughs> yeah. But we are there telling people that's uh, what matters. Yeah. We are there. I'd only just definitely. seen the film. So uh, I think the night before and loved it. It's, it's definitely, yeah, it was on my discoveries list last year and, I absolutely love the film. It's such a cool movie. But, uh, yeah, super fun to be involved in that, and it'd be fun to do that again, maybe for an Indicator disc, now that we're about to give them so much love. I mean, yeah, here's a, what a great way to um, try to force their hand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, my, so mine, this is pretty easy once I got it. I was, obviously, I've taken longer to get to Indicator uh, than you. My first shipment came in a couple days back, and and I was tipped over to do it because one of my favorite films of all time, had this beautiful beautiful um version of this uh with just so much so much that i don't even know how if i'll ever get through it all <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know if it matters and um, we are talking about uh, Jacques Tournier's night of the demon which is you know the greatest val luden film that val luden has nothing to do with um, yep. <laughs> it's a, a but what you see you really see all the things learned from the luden films and then taken just a little bit further from what i am learning in one of the extras on here the documentary uh, on it which was fantastic what was the documentary called Um, Speak of the Devil the making of Night of the Demon Uh, you get the feeling that uh, Turnier actually was wanting to go all the way with his work with Ludum really not showing anything there's a lot of questions whether he really wasn't going to show the monster or not Um, the demon but uh either way you can see the influence of that work and yet you know ternier such a talented director such a talented visual director that you know even when it's just hoofs on the in the sand you're just totally in it you know you just it really catches you by throat but this this little box it's like a small box release and this is a film that always had very marginalized releases i mean when I was probably 19, 20, whenever it is I heard about this film and found it for the first time, it was a really crappy copy. And it was, uh, at that time, I remember notoriously difficult to see. Um, And obviously there's a lot of confusion about which cut and which version and did some versions not have the monster. I I always remember that being a thing. Um, But this has a excellent uh, commentary. So the only two things I've really gone through on this release so far, the uh, the excellent commentary, which is... um, with a, what's the historian? Is it Tony Earnshaw? Tony Earnshaw. Uh, who wrote the book on...
0: Yeah, he wrote Beating the Devil, The Making of Night of the Demon. And, th- and I'm with you. That commentary is one of my favorite commentaries I've heard in a really, really long time. Yeah, loved it.
1: Yeah, no, it's excellent. And it has like four different versions, you know, because there's two, there's a UK and a US 82-minute version, which were originally the releases. And the only difference there is the title and some credits. And then there's a 96-minute version I'm not a hundred percent sure what the difference there is. So I'm going to have to watch that just to see if that's a a version that has stuff that I'm not really familiar with or not. Um, But just, you know, hearing about where all these people's careers were when they kind of came together. I mean, it's also great because uh, some of the actors are still around. Um, Peggy Cummins is in the, you know, in the documentary, which was kind of fantastic to hear, you know, from the female lead of this movie from 50 years ago, uh, talking about Dana working with Dana Andrews and what he was like on set, and you know, obviously Tanier cast Dana because he wanted somebody he had worked with before and so the two of them obviously get along great but Dana Andrews obviously was you know fairly troubled but she tells one story on there where she where she's trying to book dinner with him <laughs> in, a, in a week's time uh, to have dinner you know with her her husband and Dana Andrews response is like you know I mean I'll be lucky to be alive in a week you know what, how do I know <laughs> if I'll be alive and, and she was just talking about how very American he is in that sense of like you know formal plans don't really work but he was also drinking a lot and you know the producer kind of had it in for him wasn't a fan didn't want to cast him so it's it's a really interesting Making of behind the scenes, but there's so much on here that I'll be that you'll probably be better at running some of that down than me. Um, And I'll kind of do it because I I don't I don't tend to binge extras, I tend to kind of take my time with it. But either way, the movie looks fantastic. And this is if you haven't done seen this film, I I discussed it well, we both discussed it because we're both big fans on one of the cult movies episodes, I assume, from the Perry book. Yeah, maybe two, maybe part two. I think it was two. And um, it's just one of my favorite movies, like period. And seeing it in this perfect vision, it, it's done, it really is uh, probably better. It's just like a, a tiny step up from all my favorite Luden stuff, which I love all of those, those films. But there's something about this one, and I think it's Carswell. Excuse me, sir.
2: I couldn't help overhearing your conversation with a librarian. Your interest in seeing the true discoveries of witches and demons, is that it? Yes? I have a copy. I'll gladly put at your disposal. And the British Museum didn't have the only copy? Apparently not, Dr. Holden. I have what is perhaps the finest library in the world on witchcraft and the black arts. You know my name? Oh, yes. And you know mine. I'm Julian Carswell. How did you know I was here? Oh, isn't it the scientist who always calls what he can't explain otherwise by the word coincidence? Let's call this coincidence. I wouldn't like to think I'd been followed from my hotel this morning. Oh, I assure you you weren't followed. I just thought it might be profitable for both of us to meet, you see. Shh. Mm. It's rather difficult to talk here. Why not come out to my place in the country? The book's there. If I don't find what I want, I might take you up on that. I'm delighted. Just one thing. Let's understand each other, Mr. Carswell. My investigation of you and your cult won't be stopped. Oh, but uh, if I could make my point, I could persuade you. I'm not open to persuasion. But a scientist should have an open mind. That's what investigations are for. Oh, well, um, in any event, here's my card. Lovett Hall, near Wargreave. I'll be seeing you soon. I'm sure. Oh, excuse me. How oh, clumsy! So so sorry. Here are your papers, sir. Thank you. Goodbye. Don't leave it too long.
1: That tips it over, and I think it's a his performance, also the character. It's it's also I'm a big you know fan of um debunker type. Stories, You know, somebody comes to debunk something, but then we, the audience, know it's real. <laughs> yeah. And that's a problematic place to put a character. And I, I think this film really gets, you know, and uh, it gets you kind of uh, in a place where there's just these weird moments where they create effects. For the time, which are remarkable, but I think even today, there's like the cloud formation that's kind of, you know, uh, shot almost backwards, it feels like Uh, it it feels physical and tangible, not just like a a CG effect, you know, which I think is really exciting. There is one thing I didn't mention about this release, which is actually my favorite thing of all, uh, which has nothing to do with the release, but shows kind of the nerdiness. I have a perfect white card that came with it that just says (laughs) Julian Carswell, Lufford Hall, Warwickshire, and then in memoriam, Henry Harrington uh, allowed two weeks. So the idea that you have that amount of time before the demon's coming for you to pass it on. But it's really cool to have this. It's almost just like a nice little keepsake. Um, But you just see the love gone into this. This is put together by people who understand that this is not a B-movie. This is a great, great movie. You know, it might have been a B-movie for purposes... Of release, but the, this is this is going for something a little more, uh, and yeah, we're all lucky to get such a great release.
0: Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, you know, it, I, I said it about the Luton films, but I feel like those should be in the conversation with the Universal horror films as far as classic horror goes. I, I like I'm them more. You, I, think, I really do. I actually. think uh, I, I do, do too. More. No, I do too. Honestly, yeah. um, but the fact that they aren't talked about in the same breath as much is a shame. Um, and part of no that has, has to do with the vil- Yeah. Yeah, no yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, part of that has to do with availability, but I'm hoping that we're going to see more. Uh, they're trickling out slowly on Blu-ray, and I've heard whispers that there may be some more, so I hope that's happening. Uh, but this, I'm with you. This is a just a hair above the Luton stuff, which I already love, and truly one of my favorite movies. I, I did a whole episode about this release with uh, our friend John Cribs from The Pink Smoke, uh, for just the disc, it hasn't been released yet. It'll be out in uh, a few weeks, so look for that if you want a more detailed uh, rundown of the extras. But just know, it's I'm with you. It, that could have easily been my pick of the year for sure. It's an amazing, amazing Blu-ray set.
1: And most importantly, this plays in all uh, Blu-ray players, so that's why I bought it. Yeah. So I don't have a yeah, region free. So this is there's no snobbery here. You can play this film, and it didn't cost much to ship it. So I think that's one of the hesitations I had. Ordering any kind of disc from a different country is like, oh, that's going to cost a lot more. It really didn't. So, you know, yeah. keep that in mind. It, it makes it a lot more accessible.
0: Yeah. And the same can be said for almost all uh, indicator releases. You know, you hear a UK label, you're like, oh, I got to get a player. No, they're almost all region free, uh, ex- with a few exceptions. Every one that they have at the bottom of the listing will tell you if it's region free or not. And I'd say, you know, 85% of them are. I think so. hardcore, I couldn't get. Oh, that might might not be I can't remember. And that's what I wanted it. to get um yeah.
1: I did want to say one more thing, which is not something we were talking about doing uh for these, but I, I, I just can't resist, which is a, a pairing for this movie that came out this year that I'll be it'll be in my top ten for uh Shockwave's horror films. But uh it's uh the British film Ghost Stories, which got really overlooked here, but did really well in the UK. It is a perfect debunker double feature. I mean, that is the ultimate debunker. It's really about a guy trying to debunk all these ghost stories and it would play so well with Night of the Demon. Like it might be one of my favorite like doubles in a long time. So I I just wanted to throw it in there if you're looking for a new movie to see it wasn't uh, part of our plan. But, uh, and I I don't know, we're not going to go into like other discs, but I will give a runner up. I'm not going to go into it, but I want to give a runner up to Arrow uh, just on a personal level, for releasing these New Zealand films that mean a lot to me—Vigil, Smash Palace, and Sleeping Dogs—Navigator uh, soon, but especially those three, because they are films I never thought I'd see on Blu-ray in this country. I never thought anyone would care in this part of the world. So I have my DVDs in my closet. You know, I have a pretty big New Zealand section that I brought over with me. But you know, just knowing that these films were lovingly uh, treated. Is really really exciting, and if you want to take a risk on something, you know, check one of those out.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's just a testament to the place we're at with these labels and the fact that they're digging into catalogs from other countries and bringing out things in the states. I, I think it's wonderful. I think it's a beautiful time to be uh, collecting physical media. I know not everybody can afford to do it, um, but. You know, every once in a while, maybe you can take a chance on a disc and it's neat to just have them available to be, to be gotten if you want, you know, so hats off to them.
1: Yeah. And make sure you're listening to just the discs for more disc stuff because that's where (laughs) it's always being talked about all the time. Um, Yeah so yeah so our our main topic so the next couple episodes usually we're going to be more topic based and just kind of more a little more uh hangout less listish to because our other you know our major episodes are obviously going to be more listing but we we're at the end of the year so we have to we have to tick those boxes um and keep up with what we've been doing so we are gonna talk about our 10 favorite discoveries of the year and and this is one of my favorite things to do now. And and in some ways I think it was because of your original lists that you did for Rupert Pupkin. Um, yeah. When you first asked me, I think I had seen them for about a year and then, then, then I can't remember if you asked or if I asked you to do one, I have no idea now, but uh, I always really, I think it's, it's the part that's most important to me, to be honest, now as a cinephile is discovering new films and not just living in my memory and nostalgia. I like to keep expanding and, and finding new things. And this last season of pure cinema that became my focus was every list i made i think i had at least a new at least one or two new viewings and it really kept it kind of exciting for me so uh so i will be these are gonna we're not we're not gonna go as in depth as we would on a normal episode so this will go a lot more um quickfire in a sense But uh, a lot of mine, at least half, are probably uh, things that have been on different episodes of the last season. So I'll I'll mention what episode that is just in case you want to hear more uh, on those topics. And especially if somebody's uh, a new listener, it's a chance to kind of throw back.
0: Yeah, and just so you know, uh, people that are listening for the first time, we had an episode last year where we mixed our discoveries and our favorites of 2018. We're going to split them up this year. But discoveries for at least as far as my blog was concerned, as far as Rupert Pupkin speaks was concerned, came from a place of wanting to have people keep track of older films they're watching. Now, from my site, the rule of thumb loose was anything pre-2000. So we're talking about films that are you know almost 20 years old and older. Um, not to say that if you saw something from 2004 that's not important. That's great, too. Uh, I think going back is always a good thing, you know? But um, I think the 90s, 80s, 70s, and then prior get less attention the further we get away from them by some. And I understand a lot of people just want to stay current to new movies because that's hard enough to do. But one of the things I love about the Discoveries list is that they are, like our show, hopefully, uh, always kind of evergreen in terms of giving you an uh, ideas to what things that you can watch uh, older films if you're looking for something interesting that you haven't seen or you haven't heard talked about a thousand times. Um, that's kind of the point of them. And, yeah, I was really psyched when you started doing lists, and it's been a thing now where I've gotten a bunch of people. We've been doing the discoveries on the site for quite a few years now. Um, I want to say 2000. 2010 or 11, I think, was the first year I did it, maybe. I can't remember. But um, anyway, it's something I keep track of constantly, and I know you do too. It's just sort of something to keep you going, something to keep you excited about cinema and discovering new movies, and to never utter the phrase, I've seen everything, because it's not possible. <laughs> and that's what we love about yeah, movies. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. So anyway, that's where these things come from, and uh, we're just going to run down... Ten a piece, I guess. Why don't you go first?
1: Well, and it shows, yeah, and it shows that you aren't going to run out because if every year you can find ten to fifteen films that you hadn't seen that are all great or really entertaining, then you know you're you're never going to run out. You, there's just they're always around the corners, and often it's availability. Something will yep. suddenly pop up, whether it's on YouTube or on Blu-ray, it will pop up, and you'll be like, oh shit, just like Next of Kin that I'd been talking about obviously before. You know things like that that just suddenly are back in the in, in some in your purview, whereas before they're kind of lost. Um, and that's the exciting part well okay so this version of my list this audio version will be slightly different than my um, by two titles my written one if I do you know if, you're, if I write you to. this up for you I feel like I've, I've done that less only because we always end up talking about it um, and that's because two of the films uh, that would definitely be in the, in the top few um, one would probably be take the number one spot we just talked about last week so I won't go into passionate friends and the window again but let me just give them my highest praise and tell you they will 100% make my written version of this 10 at the cost of two of others uh, just because I just don't want to go back into them because you can hear it in the last episode. There were late discoveries for me at the very end of the year um, but both fantastic. So uh, I'll I'll go with my number 10 which is um, actually a horror title um, and it's a, a really fantastic movie that I hadn't even heard of until this year and it is called The City of the Dead
2: Going to a place called Whitewood for a week or so to do some research Whitewood. Not many God-fearing folks visit Whitewood nowadays. Any witches buried there? There are indeed. On Candlemas Eve, a coven of witches gathered beneath the Raven's Inn to perform a black mass in the honor of Lucifer. The witch, Elizabeth Selwyn, marked a young girl for sacrifice.
1: Leave, Whitewood. Leave Whitewood tonight. It's directed by John Llewellyn Moxie from 1960.
0: Oh, I have this, but I haven't watched it yet.
1: It had a um, changed U.S. title of Horror Hotel for a long time. So this is the kind of movie that if somebody didn't hand it to me and say, this is excellent, I probably would never watch. There, there are just some movies that if I see a cover, and eh, it's a black and white film from 1960, all right, cool, you know, another horror film, you know, there's some witches, all right. You know, it's, I, I see a lot in in the horror stuff. Well, this one, when it got this Blu-ray uh, version, which was just this year, a good friend of mine, Dick Grunert uh, literally, watched, had just watched it and handed it to me. Goes, no, this is excellent. Like that's you'll from be surprised. Arrow, right? So you know, uh, it wasn't an Arrow one. It was a it, I don't know what the company was. At, okay. l- at least I, they might be doing a version. As far yeah, as I, yeah, they did my, too yeah I I might be wrong I think this was an American version that wasn't an Arrow disc Um, and it was like a smaller release it only had like one extra feature which was a long long format interview with Chris Lee for like an hour it was really really interesting Um, but this movie is this is the well for one it's the most British American film I've ever seen in my life (laughs) like like it says it's an American film it's set in Massachusetts but it really is incredibly British Uh, and that's just the observation of watching it when I actually read up about it of course it's actually shot in England and everyone's English and they're all putting on, you know, American accents. It was um, uh, actually made, the story's by a a guy, Milton Sabotsky, who was actually the person who formed Amicus. And so a lot of everyone involved were people who then would go on to make all of the Amicus, especially a lot of the the writer did a lot of the um, anthologies. And technically, this is the first Amicus film, but I think it was called Vulcan at the time. Uh, And this guy ended up producing uh, Maximum Overdrive, which is probably the most opposite end of the spectrum from this movie this movie is really as close as you get to a a great mario bava film without it having being directed by bava it's it's just shot so much like uh, his films to be honest it's super eerie it's like uh, constantly lots of fog and in some ways it's older and creakier but man, there's something about the the kind of dread um, and the and the, just the feeling of the town. So it's set in a version of a, a Massachusetts town called Whitewood. Uh, the opening scene is like it's like 1690s, and there's a witch being burned at the stake, uh, Elizabeth Selwyn. And as she's being burned at the stake, everyone in this town's band together to burn her. She makes a pact with the devil in that moment uh, that she will you know give him her give him her soul you know to kind of get revenge on this town or whatever it is and then it cuts to christopher lee in the present day telling that story to a bunch of his students and he's a university professor of the occult and you know (laughs) i love these these topics that (laughs) you wish a university really had but (laughs) i I think it's only in movies so much Uh, and then it's about this woman basically who uh she's a young co-ed and she uh, you know wants to on her vacation wants to kind of further uh her research paper on witchcraft so she decides oh i'll go to that town and ravenson i think it's called or uh or that's the inn in the town ravenson And uh, she goes there and uh, weird things start happening and you start to unleash that there really are witches and Satanists out to get her. And um, it's what's surprising without uh, being too spoilery uh, because this is a very interesting film in terms of its structure. It it came out the same year as Psycho and was in production before Psycho. So there's no way it could have seen it. It has very similar uh, structure to that movie, which is kind of, Impressive, given how original Psycho was seen at the time, um, and the film. So, as a, as a form, it's kind of surprising the way it's put it together. But just in terms of its mood and atmosphere, this is top notch uh, horror. But the other thing, reason I bring it up with Psycho is it makes you realize how contemporary Psycho is. For 1960 because this movie feels like it was made 40 years before psycho it feels like a time capsule piece compared to how like psycho just feels like a contemporary film with contemporary contemporary sexuality and uh, ideas and, and but yet both films are black and white and they feel like they're made you know you know oceans apart but you know it's it's 78 minutes long, which is an art form I feel like has been lost on Netflix of late. <laughs> uh, I've been seeing a lot of two-hour and 14-minute mo- movies lately, which don't uh, necessarily float my boat. Um, but, you know, it's, so it's lean and mean, and it's, uh, you know, it's just really, I really highly recommend this if this is, um, if you like atmospheric horror in the vein of a, of a, you know, Mario Bava or the best of Hammer. Um, yeah, this this one was a really nice surprise.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm glad I already have it. Excited to watch it
1: you're good i don't know if yeah you might have a different version than than me it sounds like
0: yeah i'm not sure what the differences are but uh, but i definitely have a version of it so i'm i'm gonna check it out
1: and sadly the director only went on to do a lot of tv i've looked him up i was excited to see more films by him but he did hundreds upon hundreds of episodes of things like the saint and murder she wrote and just every tv show you can imagine
0: oh wow that's too bad you always kind of hope that there's there's more uh in the kitty but i guess not not on this Um, one um I'm going to start with a Chuck Heston movie. I am a big fan of him as an actor. Uh, He did a lot of interesting movies in the 60s and 70s. I mean, obviously, he did some big stuff in the 50s, you know, some highly regarded stuff. But I, I get interested in the little pockets of odd films that he did in the late 60s and early 70s. The one I'm talking about is a little movie called Number One from 1969. Ron
2: Catlin, the best, one of a kind, number one, top of the heap, in the toughest game in town, Charlton Heston is Ron Catlin, number one, but not with his wife. The
5: small world of Ron Catlin, knock him down.
2: Trample them under, grind them to a pulp. But not with his friends. How
4: about booing, babe? Can you live with that?
2: But not with the fans. You're not even worth the price of a ticket anymore, anyway. Fifteen years in pro football leaves scars on the body, <laughs> on the soul. <gasps> and when you're number one, there's nowhere to go but down.
0: And it is Heston as a washed-up quarterback. He plays... The character's name is Cat Catlin. Hmm. And he plays, I think, for the New Orleans Saints. I think they actually use the real team logo. I can't remember. if Maybe it's a made-up team. I can't remember. But um, he's, he's sort of become an alcoholic. And... He's, you know, dealing with sort of team politics and, you know, potentially being pushed out. And he's got a buddy of his played by, it was, oh, I think it's Bruce Dern, actually. Yeah, there's a great scene with him and Bruce Dern where I can't remember if Dern... I think Dern used to be on the team and he retired and now he's got some lucrative business. I can't remember if it's real estate or what it is, but he's basically pitching Heston on like, Hey man, just get out of the game. How much, how many years have you got left? Why don't you come and do what I'm doing? And Heston is very hesitant about it. Um, But it's, it's a really good uh, Heston movie. You know, he, it gives him some room to be overly dramatic but I just like the idea of him as a football player. I don't know why. <laughs> I think it's funny to me. Yeah, no, it's um, interesting, Because yeah. he's a big man. It's not like he couldn't have done it, but I just find it amusing. I guess I like the... I, I, I may have talked about it on the show. I'm not a gigantic sports person myself, but I love sports movies in general. I think the dramatic mechanism of sports movie sort of dynamics is perfect for, for cinema. It really... You know, the big game or whatever, that kind of thing is so dramatically perfect for movies that because
1: well, because unlike life there's an actual winner right there's victory yeah. there's underdogs who are overcome yeah it's that's why I think we like sports in our lives I think is the reason but it makes sense perfectly for cinema the two things yeah. just perfectly collate
0: yeah so I mean this is a little bit more behind the scenes and not as much on the field but there are some good on the field bits and the end of the movie plays on the field so that that was kind of fun but anyway not like the best movie i've ever seen but something that stood out to me and and just having heston and bruce stern together and then the supporting cast includes jessica walter who plays heston's wife uh john randolph is uh i think the coach of the team And G.D. Spradlin, you know, there's just some great character actors that show up in it. So um, that one's, you know, not too available on DVD, but I think it's pretty widely available streaming, Amazon, wherever. Uh, It's directed by Tom Grise, who is the dad of the the guy who, yeah, the actor who played um, Laszlo in. And
1: Napoleon Dynamite's um, cousin or whatever, uncle or whatever. And he's in uh, the greatest sequel of all time, Fright Night 2.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's John Grise. Uh he is also in Monster Squad. Uh he is the werewolf in Monster Squad. Anyway, this is his dad, and his dad did um a bunch of movies with Heston, in fact. Uh, you know, stuff like The Hawaiians and uh Will Penny and I feel like there's there's like a bit a few more. Um I can't remember what the rest of the Heston output was, but anyway I just find that interesting that 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 guy's dad had a part you know sort of a relate working relationship with Heston and they did a bunch of movies together including this one about Heston as a quarterback uh anyway it was fun number one is what that's called
1: so and and I'll ask you if only when you remember because you might not take note on this but for me the one thing I've taken real cares on my discoveries lists for in in the in the past I think I did on your the first ones I wrote for you if I can remember who Recommended it or how I heard about it. I like to try to keep track of that because, you know, we we hear every week, like literally every week. I don't think a week's gone by since starting Pure Cinema where we don't hear from someone thanking us for a movie or telling us they watched something because of it. So I like to make sure I'm also giving back when people have handed me something or told me about something. So if you remember how you heard about it. You know we'll throw that in if you don't, I, yeah. I, I, you might, not I don't remember. think
0: this one was recommended. I think it's just one that I came across. I was sometimes when I'm looking for movies that I want to discover, quote unquote, I'll go into the filmographies of actors that I like or directors that I like and go, okay, what haven't I seen here? And for some reason, yeah, this one popped up. I don't think it was recommended to me. I do have a few on the list here that I, I can remember where I first heard of them and I'll definitely call that out. But this one in particular, uh, was just me stumbling across it, I think.
1: And I think you cheat because you make people write these lists and then you have these lists well, of films you can then discover what a it's cheat. true.
0: Yeah, it's you, totally a cheat. You're fact, making them I, come to you. Absolutely. That's fully the reason I started the whole thing was <laughs> I was like, I need more ideas of things to watch. And uh, that's what the, the blog is all about, is is giving me fodder for discoveries, really. Yeah, um, no, it's a great resource yeah.
1: for that. I, I find that, too, though. I'll, I'll flick through them and go, oh, yeah, I don't know that one. I don't know. I make a few lists of them. And, uh, yeah. No, it's great. It's a great way to keep track of it. Yeah. Um, All right. So from football to my number nine, which is the most bonkers movie I saw this year, and I had not seen it by the time we did our bonkers episode, but it would have been way up there Uh, for people who uh, love it. uh, We did talk about Story of Ricky O uh, at some point. It's definitely in that vein. It might be even more bonkers, which is hard to believe. <laughs> um, and I came across again, this wasn't one that was recommended to me. I, came, I was um, doing a lookbook for a film project I'm trying to get together, and I'd seen a couple images that I was like, holy shit, these images are right in line with the thing that I'm doing. Of course, this movie's not in line with the thing I'm doing at all. Uh, this film is called The Devil's Fetus. I
2: am
1: directed by hung chen lao from 1983 it is uh, part of like the hong kong you know sorcery magic you know horror movies that like boxers omen type things uh this is this one i so i became aware of it about a year ago look seeing these photos but couldn't find it and uh, just There's just no way that I could see it. I could see a trailer on YouTube, and that was about it. And then I swear to you, about 10 days ago, it, the whole film popped up on YouTube in pretty nice quality with English subtitles. And I was just in heaven uh, for two reasons. A, I knew finally I got to see it, and B, i knew the show was coming up i was like all right sweet so um this movie okay it opens with a uh woman and her mother i think unless it's her grandmother they're at some random auction and they find this jade vase and for some reason she's just kind of like mesmerized by this little vase and thinks so she has to put a bid on it and so she she bids on it and then she goes home and um, she's in bed and she's looking at the vase and then she kind of starts masturbating with it and you're like (laughs) what? But it's not like they're not showing you too much so it's not it could be implied but she has these um, nephew and niece who are really young kids who are like kind of peeking in the room to see what she's up to and instead of seeing her with a vase, they see her with this demon man who's on top of her. So, Yikes. so she's seeing a vase, but what they're seeing is like basically the devil. Kind of, it definitely reminds me of the Rosemary's Baby, uh, devil rape sequence. And it's really fu- kind of fucked up this part. And this is the—I swear to God—this is the first like six minutes of the movie. Um, and they're watching that. That, and then, uh, then eventually, uh, this character d- eventually dies, and there, and you have a scene that is even crazier than well i'd say it's about on par with the crazy extra extra bonkers birth scene because <laughs> in this film it's a corpse that at its funeral starts instantly getting pregnant so you see the belly as they're doing the the prayer the belly starts getting big and a demon uh is uh delivered and it is Absolutely bonkers, uh, wow. and, and the movie then takes these just crazy turns. It's just like the these kind of Hong Kong movies have so much energy to them. That's the thing I, I'm always amazed by. Like, yes, it might be bonkers, and you're watching something, but instead of being boring, it just will change genres. <laughs> you know, and suddenly you're watching something with you know a bit of martial arts sequence, uh, some magic, some like, definitely a lot of big trouble, little China kind of vibe at times. Uh, but it's also like really aping off the thing because this demon it then cuts to like 20 years later and these kids these kids the two kids who witnessed it grow up and eventually uh the demon comes out again uh it ends up taking over the dog so this is kind of like the thing and then it goes sw- starts switching bodies and goes into one of the teenagers uh and of course you know then they need to get a wizard to try to stop things and that's when things get really crazy so this definitely has many moments where I'm like WTF but it also has images horror images about you know, about four or five that I'll never forget like just quick moments that really work and that were they were the stills that i had come across um, so the effects are actually pretty high end but um, there is there's something about it I was watching like oh wow the soundtrack's like so much better than I'd expect in a movie like this and I just looked it up and I don't know if it's legal and maybe this is why we can't watch this movie but it's actually got a whole bunch of Vangelis, uh, oh as you would remember from Blade Runner, uh, but also it takes a exact uh, sample from Ennio Morricone's soundtrack for Carpenter's the thing. It actually wow. samples it. So, and as I'm watching it, I wasn't picking it, but I knew it, f- it felt familiar, and it kind of, you know, certainly raised the stakes in the movie but this is about as weird as it gets man and it is super fun and you, the problem with youtube being you don't know if it will be there tomorrow um yeah. but if i was a severin films or somebody like that i would be all over releasing this on blu-ray if it, it is a lot of fun and um yeah that's definitely you won't regret that 75 probably minutes of <laughs> of your strange life that the only caveat i'll put um and i'm less sensitive to this than you is there might be some animal? There's definitely cruelty. I don't know if it's actual cruelty, as in you know to the animals, or if it's just on-screen stuff. But to a dog, to a there's a um, a bird. I don't know if it's a falcon or a you know eagle or something. But there there's a couple scenes that could be uh you know you know they, they, obviously it's not the point of the movie. But when you're working in countries like Hong Kong and China, obviously. Some of these laws are laxer in terms of animals, so that might be shocking to someone. So I'd, I would put that warning on there. Um, but, man, this is also just utter bonkers fun. Nice. And I haven't, I haven't mentioned this one anywhere. I even st- didn't mention on Shockwaves yet because I really wanted to uh, put this one out there here. So
0: Nice. The Devil's Fetus. Uh, I'll try and check it out on YouTube before it gets
1: 1983,
0: uh, yep. Um, all right, well, I have something that's totally different than that. This one is from 1993, uh, from the late director Ted Demme, and it is Who's the Man?
3: Barnes, Here. I want you to go up to 153rd Street, keep the gang members away from the old ladies, all right? Got it. Day.
0: Here.
3: I want you to go up to St. Peter's, get the crackheads out of the bake sale, all right? And get that hair out of your face. (laughs) Thank you. All right, uh, uh, louver? Uh, Lever? Lover, Sergeant. <laughs> Jesus. Lover. And, uh, Dre. D- Dre. Dre. That's Dre, Sergeant. Dre. Doctor. Dre. Yes,
5: sir.
3: Somebody <laughs> else just snitched. Dre, larva, a panda. <laughs>
4: lover yes sir
3: have a donut thanks argh whoop 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 whoo doc doctor Drain. doctor drey uh let me ask you something you got a stethoscope no no do you uh do you work in a hospital no do you have any patients no no did your mother give you that name by birth no you just decided to become a doctor Okay. Uh, you know, my uh, brother went to school for eight years and took out the $350,000 in federally financed student loans, and he's paying back at an interest rate of 18%, so he should be done paying that about, I don't know, when he's about 75 years old, just so he can call himself Dr. Cooper! Excuse me, Sarge. Mind if I have a donut? No, you may not have a donut, okay? You will never have a donut again, ever. You will never have another donut, okay? Lover can have as many donuts as he wants. He can have a dozen donuts. He can have two dozen donuts. He can strap a fag bag full of donuts around his waist when he goes to work. He can have a giant donut on the top of the squad car, okay? But you will never have another donut. You can't even say the word donut. Do you understand? The word donut is no longer in your vocabulary, okay? If you meet a guy named Don, you call him by his last name from now on. That's the way it works. No bagels, no lifesavers, nothing wrong with a hole in it.
0: Nothing! The first hip-hop who whodunit as it is Oh, called. that's right. I I didn't
1: see it, but I remember the promo.
0: Yeah, for some reason I hadn't seen it. I uh, I don't know why. I had you know maybe thought it was a lesser effort from Mr. Demi, but I was mistaken. It is very much for me a Abbott and Costello in a modern urban setting. You know, it's it's very goofy. Uh, it's got a lot of cameos from the likes of. You know, Salt and Pepper, uh, Bernie Mac, Bill Bellamy, Chris Cross is in the movie, Buster Rhymes, Queen Latifah, Heavy D, Fab Five Freddy, Colin Quinn, and of course, Dennis Leary. Um, <laughs> of but, course. Well, because he's in a lot of Ted Demi movies. Yeah. He's in uh, uh, The Ref, being probably maybe Ted Demi's best movie. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to think about that. Oh, I love um, The Ref.
1: The Ref is hilarious.
0: Yeah, The Ref's great. Um, so, anyway, this one was a lot of fun. It's just fun to see the, you know, Ed Lover and Dr. Dre play the, the two sort of inept barbers who at the beginning of the movie are pushed into uh, signing up for the police force in New York. And, you know, they sort of stumble onto like a mystery and it's one of those things where you're like, not sure that they're going to be able to figure it out, but, um, it's, it's very fun to watch. And, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it and also pleasant not pleasantly surprised by the fact that it's not really that available. It's on DVD and that's it. It's not really streaming anywhere that I could find. It's definitely not on Blu-ray, but I think it's worthy of being talked about and, you know, rewatched and rediscovered and not written off as any kind of a time capsule from 1993, which, you know, you certainly could put it in that place because of all the cameos and all the people that are involved that were of that time and place but i don't think that will take you out you know at all i think in its essence it's just a really fun and surprisingly sophisticated uh comedy that i i got a big kick out of so i had to include it so but yeah who's the man
1: that's exactly the kind of movie I will never watch unless somebody tells me, watch that. And that's why I like yeah. doing these things. Because, you ju- you know, it just will sit on a shelf and you'll be like, yeah, hey, hey, I missed that at the time, but nothing about it. It hasn't got that pull. And so, uh, how did it compare no. to, say, Uncle Drew this year? Because Uncle Drew's one I've been eyeing as well, Yes, you it's know. It's better I than Uncle like Drew. Ball. Okay, better than Uncle Drew, all right.
0: Although, I mean, the, the basketball side of things I know will draw you in. and I like Uncle Drew. I think Uncle Drew is fun uh, and worthy of looking at, but this is better for sure. Okay, alright
1: um, Alright, that's good to do Okay, well here is, uh, here's one we talked about Back on our Bonkers episode uh, And that is number 8, uh, Heavenly Bodies uh, Directed nice. by Lawrence Dane, 1984 A world where body language Speaks louder than words A big health club has just bought
2: Your building out from under you What health club? Jack Pearson's Sporting Life
3: what? They're giving you 30 days to clear out
2: Jack Pearson's sporting life is closing down Heavenly Body. If it was a business decision, to make a terrific parking lot. I'm challenging you to a competition. The best in your club against the best in our club.
1: And this film made me... Probably the happiest of any film I saw this year, uh <laughs> as I was saying this was a few months ago, it was uh the night before I turned forty, and I was looking for that last movie to watch, and I had recorded off t c m and had just you know and all all because of hundred percent because of uh Mr. Phil Blankenship from. Uh, the new Beverly, who was on our uh, calendar episode, this is one of his favorite movies, and I had missed seeing it multiple times where he had screened it, unfortunately, and so I just was like, I got to keep that taped. So had it on the TCM. So this is one. It's just a, um, you know, it's a dancer size, uh, <laughs> dancer size studio, an ex- uh, exploitation version of Flashdance, uh, directed by the bad guy of Scanners. <laughs> if, <laughs> if that if that doesn't sell it, which I didn't realize at the time, because when I was watching Scanners recently, I was like, oh, there he is again. So now I can say it's from. the director of Scanners (laughs) the actor from Scanners Uh, he's also uh, in Rituals which I love Rituals he's like one of the leads in Rituals Uh, but this is the only film he ever directed which is super bizarre Uh, it totally is so the opposite of the on-screen presence he tends to have which is super heavy and very serious and this film is light as a feather uh, fun uh, 80s nostalgia cheese in all the right ways um, and it's just, it literally is about a, um, the, you know, the most charming uh, actress on earth, since the Dale, in this film, who's just totally delightful. Uh, it's about her and her her little fr- her friends who start this cool uh, jazz aerobics club, and she becomes a bit of a sensation. And then the uh, rival Jim decides that they're going to try to close them down. And so the conflict boils down to a dance marathon to settle the score. And this isn't the kind of movie I would normally be drawn to. I To be honest, it's usually the kind of thing where I'd be like, yeah, you know, whatever, I'll get to it or if I saw it in a marathon I'm sure I'd enjoy it but it really just made me feel great and it had some really funny scenes it would it would definitely play best in a in a theater but if you are uh, a heavenly bodies virgin I would uh tell you to try to find a copy uh I still haven't deleted it from my DVR because <laughs> because I'm worried that there's no other way to see it is there a DVD from Canada uh
0: not an official one that I'm aware of but you know we need to ask Phil he may be aware of something we're not but yeah, it was released on VHS, uh, and so you can certainly get it that way. Uh, but yeah, as far as official DVD, I don't, I haven't seen anything thus far, which is too bad. I hope it gets a release because it is just a blast. We talked about it on the exploitation sampler episode. Uh, oh, what's that? This year. It wasn't
1: our bonkers. Okay, you're right. Thank yeah. you for getting that right. I totally. Yeah. Forgot that. Um, And I will say, it's the only exploitation film I've ever seen that is exploiting another film, but has the lead character stand in front of the poster for said other film. I mean, that is impressive. Like she literally stands in front of a Flashdance poster and I was like, oh, that's really funny. So not only are you ripping it off completely, there she is just standing there. I I love that. It's great.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I totally agree. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. (laughs) But the soundtrack is just a blast. Mm -hmm. You can find the whole soundtrack on YouTube and there are so many catchy tunes on that soundtrack, which is part of the reason I love the movie, but yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's just ridiculous, but so much fun. Well, maybe we should um, keep on moving. <laughs> <laughs> which is the best yeah, song? <laughs> yeah, there's oh, I love it all, but yeah, excellent choice. I'm glad you brought that up. It's, would you know, the year I saw that for the first time, I definitely Texted Phil and was like, Holy smokes, man. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe it took me so long to get to this, and thank you. Um, So, um, all right. Well, next for me is a little movie called Nightlife from 1989. He knows it's out there.
2: escape it at night it's not really alive but it's not quite dead what's
5: going on over there
3: the whole unit's acting
5: weird 45 degrees in there the bodies are on a roller coaster what's going on come on let's get out of here
3: What in the hell is going on here? The bedroom! Don't go in the bedroom!
2: Nightlife. There's good reason to be afraid of the dark.
0: This one, also not that easy to see, unfortunately. Uh, It got a VHS release. I've seen a couple bootleg DVDs, which I think I have a bootleg DVD. I thought it was an official release, but it looks to be actually some kind of a bootleg. Is that the one um, you lent me recently? Yeah, that's see, the I one. See, I didn't
1: get to watch it, and, and now I regret it because it looked like a it looked like a real DVD. It didn't look like a bootleg.
0: Yeah, it's it. I just when I watched it, I, it seemed to be a VHS rip. Uh, but anyway, I'm hoping that you know somebody like Arrow Video. It seems right up their alley. Um, Maybe a Scream Factory could do it, but it's, it's definitely the kind of movie that those guys are releasing right now. It's basically a... It's kind of a night, Return of the Living Dead kind of thing, sort of where uh, Scott Grimes, the kid from Critters, uh, plays a guy who works part-time at his uncle's mortuary, and he's basically getting harassed by these popular kids uh, because he works at the mortuary. That's part of the reason they're on his case. And they end up getting killed in an automobile accident and the bodies are taken to his uncle's morgue and then they, there's a storm brewing and lightning and some things happen and lo and behold, the bullies are back as zombies, still harassing him. Um, so that's kind of fun. I just love the idea of like, bullies <laughs> being dead and then suddenly back and fucking with you again. Um, but it's, it's got a fun cast. Uh, John Aston, I believe uh, plays his uncle who owns the mortuary. Uh, it's got the girl from pump up the volume who uh, throws her trophies in the microwave. Uh, I don't know if you remember this girl, but she's like a goody two shoes girl that uh, plays like a decent sized role in the movie. Uh, she's like the love interest for Scott Grimes in this movie. Um, There's a few other people that you'd recognize probably. But anyway, uh, this one I do know where I heard of it first, and that was from our friend Patrick Bromley on his uh, F This Movie podcast. I can't remember what episode it was exactly now, but he mentioned it. And I was like, oh, what is that movie? I have not heard of that because I thought I was pretty good about most – 80s comedy horror films and for some reason I think again because of lack of availability I hadn't seen it so I sought it out after that so thank you to Patrick for that one at his nightlife.
1: Yeah, I, maybe I can I rebar. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. I think <laughs> I you had should.
1: it sitting on my shelf with a couple others you gave me and we just got really busy and then I was like Yeah, eh. no, there was
0: no reason to watch it. We we've talked about it like loaning stuff right now is tricky because Uh, you know, if you don't have it slotted for a specific show, like I have one particular listeners Blu-ray, um, that I've had for far, far too long because I haven't found a place to slot it into a show yet. And I need to, because I want to get it back to him anyway. Uh, yeah, it's just tricky when we're doing the shows at the rate we're doing between two different podcasts it's hard to slot things in sometimes but nightlife is a, definitely a show
1: i think that's a whole nother show where me and you are just hanging out talking about all those all those like weird things about collecting or borrowing and lending and all the problems inherent absolutely uh, my number 7 one again it's one of these uh, discs that one of my favorite directors one of the most PCP especially by, by me so far but even though we both love them uh, directors uh, and yet this one I've had the Blu-ray for about two years sitting unopened on my shelf and I decided uh, as we're getting into these discoveries man this is the time to watch Man on the Swing directed by Frank Perry 1974 nice.
5: on April 3rd Margaret Dawson was found brutally murdered on the floor of her white Volkswagen On the following day, Police Chief Tucker received a phone call from Franklin Wills, a man who knew every detail of the murder. He claimed to have the gift of clairvoyance.
2: I do believe that there are many people in the world with an ability to perceive matters beyond the range of ordinary perception. Man on a
5: Swing. A trip into the world of psychic phenomena just hadn't done,
1: I just hadn't done it, and I don't know why because Frank Perry's really one of my favorite filmmakers. So very strange that this one took me so long. um and it's a great release. It's an all of films release, uh, not a lot of extras, but um you know, I just I didn't know much about it. Obviously, this is you know, a little bit later. This is just after his like you know, truly golden period. um but uh, it's a small town uh, police chief. Uh, is investigating, you know, a, a very specific murder, a wo- a woman's murdered, uh, and her body is a young girl, basically, a young teenager, and her body is placed in kind of the front uh, seat, kind of the part where your legs would be, and then under some blankets in the car park of a supermarket is where she's found. And it's all been very meticulously placed there Um, and he really hasn't got many leads and it's, you know, it's very authentic kind of, you know, it's a real procedural. Like this is like, you know, not quite the wire level procedural, but you know, for a movie it's very procedural and uh, the chief doesn't have a great deal of leads because there really isn't uh, any evidence being left. Uh, But then a self-proclaimed psychic calls him with a couple of real key details uh, of the crime saying that he, you know, has been out of the psychic realm for a while and has now come back to it. And he's this, you know, fairly normal family man who has a normal job, but sometimes these things come to him. Uh, This is based on a true murder investigation. uh, And, uh, you know, it leaves you, the entire film is largely about, do you believe in, and, and you're taking the journey with the lead character, do you believe that this is, real do you think the guy is actually psychic or does he somehow know information about this murder investigation through more uh, insidious means and that's and that's where the tension of the movie comes from but the the nice surprise here and i don't mind sometimes admitting when i'm wrong and a lot of people will um you know always chastise you when you say i don't like xyz an actor or a director i have never been and this might be sacrilege i've never been the biggest cliff robertson fan and i don't know what it is and and it started with Obsession, to be honest. When I watched Obsession, I was like, ah, you know, by De Palma. And, and I look forward to seeing the re-release. But when I first saw it, I was like, he just, for some reason, didn't necessarily feel like a lead to me. He felt almost like a soap opera actor, I hate to say it. This is just my 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 read on Cliff. Now, when I saw Star 80 and he's playing um Hugh Hefner in a smaller role, I thought he was fantastic. So, I I think it was much more about being elite. In this film, he is a kind of the the world-weary chief of police and he is fantastic. And nice. and th- and I love it when you see those films, like when you see that film where you're like, okay, yeah, that guy's a star. he's totally real in this film and he's not at all soapy it's a totally real character he's got a wife who's pregnant and he's really trying to figure out what the fuck's going on with the psychic the psychic is the actor Joel Grey who um, uh, what was the TV show that he was on with um, Jennifer Garner that she became big on um, oh shoot!
0: Can't remember right now. Uh,
1: Alias, Alias was oh, the big show, and and he was old, much older there, obviously. But he's super odd in this film, and it's really there's other actors in there and there's other characters, but it's really a largely a two person. Uh, kind of film throughout as their their interactions as they're trying to kind of figure out what the story is with this uh this investigation but yeah cliff's fantastic in this so it, which i love that feeling of going okay cool now this is this is now i'm now i'm sure five others will pop up where i'm like oh yeah this is his golden stuff but um yeah it's it never bogs down it's edited really well um and you're never given Everything you know—it's—it's it's somewhat open-ended in conclusion. It's almost Lecter-ish. The last couple of moments where you're just don't, like the kind of power that Lecter has. Uh, there's moments where Gray has that, and you really don't know exactly uh, the status of things, which could be how the real investigation went. And. Uh, while I wouldn't put it in Perry's like golden say four or five movies where I think he's made four or five of just my favorite movies, I think this is really solid and definitely should be sought out. Uh, especially for people into these kind of you know police procedurals, it's it's a solid movie. Um, nice. and a good release.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I I've had that Blu-ray since right around when it came out, and because of the Frank Perryness of it, and. Mm-hmm. I just haven't gotten to watching it yet. So, you know, you're pushing me into uh, slotting it for January 2019. Sometimes I go heavy on stuff I might want to discover that I hadn't uh, gotten in at the end of, you know, the year prior. So this will be on my list soon. Well,
1: one important note about Frank Perry, and I do think this is important. I think as cinema goes forward, it's very easy. The auteur theory, you know, really does kind of... um, wash away a lot of actually important details but I do think that he is more of a co-director than he is a film a great film director I, I believe I believe Eleanor Perry is such a big part of his work and his best work uh, which was his wife at the time and especially on the swimmer you know that was her passion project huge you know the, she wrote the script uh, a lot of those best movies they made David and Lisa all of these films were together and they had a very messy divorce. And the films he made after are not at that same level. He's still a good film director, but the voice is not quite the same. This is in that post period. So it's still a well directed film. But Eleanor Perry's contribution I I feel gets um, overlooked. And that's just what often happens, you know, with people who don't have their name on the directing credit itself. But I do believe their partnership was a, a big a key to his best work. Yeah,
0: I would say the same could go for Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt. I think yeah, uh, she's yeah. a part of his best stuff. Um, not to say that he didn't make good movies that she wasn't involved with, but I think it's a similar thing. And, I, and some would say the same about, I think, George and Marsha Lucas. Um, mm-hmm. I want to say that she's involved with some of his best stuff. So... Anyway, yeah, there's often uh, a woman behind the scenes helping out, you know, and then obviously Hitchcock and, and Alma Revel. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories like that. And right? Edith Edith
1: Head, too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think she has a big part of it. Well, so I, I just recently was struck, and I, I, this is something I do like about social media, is when those kind of people are being remembered. And um, there's that T-shirt company right now who's putting names on T-shirts, and one was a Halloween T-shirt that said a Deborah Hill Production. I love and, that, and and I love that because it is it is important to remember, like and especially if you've made a film, you know. But if you haven't, you have no idea just how much other people do. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so it's nice to see these key. But Eleanor Perry, if do if you ever do research into Frank Perry, you'll see just how key uh, her her role in his filmmaking is.
0: Absolutely. Um, all right. So uh, back to another. I believe. Phil Blankenship favorite I think I heard of this one because of Phil or I was aware of it uh, prior to that but it it never occurred to me to seriously check it out until I sometime heard Phil um, was a fan of it and that is Black Dog from 1998
2: Jack's driving days were over I lost my license permanently when I went to prison bet you missed that life don't you
5: until the day he got an offer
2: I got a load I need brought up from Atlanta it's off the books he couldn't refuse
3: even with what we both make we are too far behind
2: i was offered a job today
3: driving you're the driver from new jersey that's me got a name jack cruz you'll have to forgive earl's manners
2: he was hoping he'd get to drive but what was supposed to be a straight run up north
1: there's over three million dollars in automatic weapons on that truck
2: what was that Mazda is about to take a few unexpected turns oh! He's trying to hijack the load You know, Southern Hospitality oh,
0: no! With uh, Patrick oh, Swayze
1: The Swayze film, shit, I saw this when it came out, damn
0: <laughs> Yeah, I had not seen this one um, It's it's one I considered for our uh, exploitation sampler, I was mm. going to call it truck Truxploitation <laughs> And the movie, slight spoiler alert, but not really, is very much White Line Fever meets Fast and the Furious, and it's from the director of Passenger 57.
3: Always bet on black.
0: But the basic gist of it is that Patrick Swayze is an ex-con who takes a driving job, but what he doesn't know is the truck is filled with uh, illegal weapons, and then he starts to get involved with the people that want the weapons and they bring his family into it and there's, uh, there's a there's a really good supporting cast including meatloaf uh Randy Travis, and uh oh man there's a couple more really good charles s dutton stephen Tobolowski um but it's it's just a lot of fun there's there's some great um truck driving business you know it, it's it's got a little bit i guess I associate it a little bit with roadhouse too where you've got Swayze you know at a disadvantaged position um, sort of being pushed into a bad spot by some um, well-off shitty people um, you know he's a little it's a different character it's certainly not the same character as Roadhouse by any means but I, I think it's you know prime role for Swayze and there's a lot of great action and driving sequences and i just had a blast with it i really really enjoyed it like way more than i ever thought i would um and i don't know i i think i just have a an affinity for for truck movies you know like i said we you and i are both fans of white line fever but um even something like convoy uh, you know things what's like the, that
1: um, what's the uh, one of my favorite thrillers is that Kurt Russell truck movie with JT Walsh Breakdown Breakdown such a good movie a great like, movie that is a fun movie yeah, um, yeah. and also no, also I Roadhouse Red I mean you know no Roadhouse not a truck movie but talking about Swayze it's another film that it's been nice to see that's one of those films where I feel like film Twitter whatever the hell that is you know but what people allude to as film Twitter I feel like Roadhouse is one that was embraced in that world which is nice to see because yeah I always think it was a bit of a joke before that but it's a really yeah. good movie. Like, you watch it. It's it like, is. It's a really fun movie. And Gazzara's oh. fantastic in that film. Such yeah, a good no, bad it, guy.
0: I think the thing that people sometimes forget is that movies like Roadhouse are sometimes some of the most satisfying and entertaining movies that you can watch. Mm-hmm. And I think as much as a great arthouse film is, and I love me some arthouse films, and they can be satisfying on certain levels as well, but something about a great entertainment You know, maybe not, I wouldn't use the word schlocky because I don't think that fits here. Uh, But, um, you know, there's just a a level of satisfaction you get from certain kinds of movies along the lines of this that I think get left out of certain conversations. And there's just something to that. There's something to be going into a movie and getting as much or more than you expected of the movie. Um, And
1: you get a lot of great scenes. I think that's the thing. Yes, because with an art house film, and and I love, you know, obviously that's a big part of my my taste. It, sometimes, in a way, it's almost like one scene one style for a whole movie that's one of the things that feels like an art house mode it's like it takes that one scene and and does it repetitively or in the same vein as and that's great for that kind of movie but with a movie like roadhouse you're gonna have all these very different scenes with all these very different actors and each one could then become memorable in its own way and so it's just a different thing the construct of it it's it's interesting i think you're right though i do think they're saying deeply satisfying and that's why hollywood's always been You know, the dominant mode of cinema in the world because they, you know, usually will make something fantastic in even the B picture, you know, what that could have been seen as sometimes is just the most fun film.
0: Absolutely. And I think there's also something to be said for the late 90s, I want to say, like that era right before DVD or just as DVD was taking off. Obviously, Black Dog, I, I think I think it even has a Blu-ray, but I'm not 100% sure of that. It definitely has a DVD. It's definitely available to stream on Amazon and everywhere. But I feel like there's something about movies in the late 90s around the DVD and things just around 9-11. I think there, that is a watershed year. And I think a lot of movies before that, um, sometimes like right before that, get lost in the shuffle for whatever reason, cultural or uh, just the fact that they didn't get an immediate DVD release. And so then when people were moving on to DVD, they left some of their VHS movies behind and they just didn't get a chance to see it. And I felt like that's what happened for me with this one. I remember it coming out on VHS and I remember thinking, I don't know about that. It looks pretty silly. But um, you know, there's something about that period too that I've, I've been finding a few movies here and there that uh, I've missed for whatever reason. And um, this one was just a lot of fun. So that's uh, Black Dog. Cool,
1: uh, it's fun. Uh, my number six is a film I discovered for uh, Shockwaves, and it was from through Shutter's re-release. But I actually got the Severn disc. But it was uh, we had Sam Zimmerman, who is a um, the main one of the main two curators on Shutter, and uh, he came on the show I think, and he recommended this film. And Becca had liked this film as well, and I was blown away. This of of the horror films I saw this year. That I hadn't seen from the past this was the horror film that I was just the style of it really blew me away and it is called Dark Waters and is directed by Mariano Bano
4: from 94 those who are blind shall see the true face of the beast and forever suffer it in their soul
1: Uh, This is the most Lovecraftian film in the way that I imagine the spirit of Lovecraft should be. Uh, It's somewhere between... I guess somewhere between Stuart Gordon and a, and a Fulci film, I would say, because Gordon's a lot funnier and a lot sharper in his dialogue. So it hasn't got that. This is definitely a mood piece in the in the way a Fulci film feels like a mood piece. But it's got this, you know, just this kind of nightmarish uh, other quality that Lovecraft has always been able to get to. It's uh, I'm not also the biggest nun horror fan which is obviously becca's uh role on our show but this is one that totally delivers so it's a it's a woman who's having these horrible visions about her childhood uh, she travels back to this like uh remote island that is uh run by nuns in this weird monastery there's i think there's a scene where a priest is like beheaded and then he's like drowning on a cross in this as this like church floods like it has imagery that's really high end it doesn't feel like you're watching this tiny horror movie at times it feels quite big in the scale uh of the vision um and she returns to this uh i think i think a friend of hers writes to her uh you know telling her some weird things going on there and then she kind of investigates and uh starts to realize that she's kind of connected to this place and there are some menacing weird images a lot of like you know bizarre uh, christ-like imagery and uh you know some weird lovecraftian like not not, not like fishmen but definitely some bizarre uh, uh inhabitants of this island but it's 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 beautiful like it's beautifully made it's exciting the movie ends and i'm just like how is this guy not the new Argento slash Fulci type director. Everyone should be seeking out every movie he's made. I I think he's made some other stuff. And I do know part of the story was it was made... I guess there was a Balkan war happening where he made this film. I don't know. I can't remember which country he ended up shooting in. But uh, so a lot of crazy stuff was happening in the background while they were making this film um, and affecting its release, I believe. Uh, But it is on Shudder and it is also on a really nice Severin uh, Blu-ray. And it just comes with my absolute highest praise for the kind of horror that I'm drawn to, which is somewhere between like art, horror and really messed up imagery and things that really deliver. It's, it's really good.
0: Nice. Yeah. This is one I haven't seen. I need to see it.
1: It's really good, man. It's really interesting.
0: Um, all right. So I'm going to move to one that I discovered, I think via Pat Healy, actor, uh, filmmaker, Pat Healy. I want to say he, I used to have him do lists for my blog. He, I've been friendly with him online for years. He's a really sweet guy and a really remarkable cinephile. And I want to say that he tipped me to this one when it first came out from Warner Archive. It's a movie called Enemy of the People from 1978.
2: Steve McQueen, in the most important dramatic role of his career. You want to ruin this town? They couldn't buy him.
0: They call him a traitor. My father is no traitor.
2: They couldn't bury him.
0: God help me, I think you people are
2: horrible. So they made him. An enemy of the people. How do you know how I feel about this town? You cannot say that! The people here assembled, decent patriotic citizens, declare Dr. Stockman to be an enemy of the people and of his community. The people are poisoned. Steve McQueen, as a man of intense personal courage. The children are poison. Steve McQueen. The water's poison. Is. And that's the end of it. An enemy of the people. Now get out of here!
0: Get, get out, out of here! And this star Steve McQueen... I was looking at it for my underrated 78 list, which I did earlier this year, and uh, it made the cut for me. It's a really great later McQueen performance. And basically he, I I forget what year it's set in, um, it's not contemporary to 78. It's, you know, maybe turn of the century-ish or something. But basically he is a scientist who works in this small Scandinavian town and the big draw for the town is that they have these uh, waters, this natural spring that's like a bath. So they have these baths, and people come there uh, for the quasi-healing properties of the baths. But he, for, I can't remember why, but for some reason he does a test on the waters, and he gets back the results. And it turns out that, I want to say, that there's like sewage in the water. There's there's shit in the water, basically. There's, it's been... Uh, contaminated, and I can't remember exactly how it it happened, but it's at the source of the springs themselves. And basically what he finds out is, I think it was because somebody had gotten sick, and so that set him off in the direction. So he starts to try to tell the people of the town, like, we should probably deal with this. And his brother, played incredibly well by Charles Durning, is like one of the bigwigs of the town. And basically when he tells his brother that they would have to basically fund some kind of reconstruction or, you know, change the source of the water, it's going to cost the town a shit ton of money. And so his brother kind of wants him to bury it, kind of wants him to not tell people about it. And he just, he's kind of in shock because he's a very, um, uh, moral guy and, so it becomes this thing where he goes to the newspapers, and the newspaper in the, in the town is like, "Oh, this is a good story," and you know they start to want to publish it. But then you know Durning is comes and has a talk with them, and so it becomes this whole thing. And basically, Durning totally villainizes uh, his brother McQueen, and the whole town turns against him. It's this whole drama. It's really incredibly tense, considering it's just a lot of people talking about you know, shitty water. Um,
1: is this the one where McQueen's got like glasses and a beard and looks totally yep. different. Okay. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing trailer. I've never seen the film. I remember seeing trailers going, Whoa, he just looked as a totally different vibe for him.
0: Totally different. Yeah. But like I said, it's, it's among his best performances from this period. And it just was one of those where, I mean, I'm i I'm, I'm a huge Steve McQueen fan as it is. And I've seen some great performances from him. Um, things like, you know, Love with a Proper Stranger, and um, there's a lot of great dramatic turns that he's done, but I hadn't seen this one, and I just was really blown away by how good he was in it and how good Charles Derning is in his role, and...
1: I, I love... He's another one of those actors who just puts a smile on my face. Like, you know, uh, the dance scenes in Best Little Whorehouse uh, <laughs> are some of my favorite... Like, if I was depressed ever, I could watch that and probably be totally fine, because pure joy
0: yeah he's great and he's just so grumpy and evil in this and it's but but he he makes it feel like it, it's coming from a real place like he is concerned about the town he's concerned about his own reputation and it's just this really incredible um, struggle of wills between these two brothers and it's it's really well done um, so I like that a lot. It's also got Richard Dysart from The Thing. He's the doctor. Uh, he shows up. I always spot him. And there's a couple other people I recognize that I can't recall right now. But it's uh, it's streaming on Amazon and stuff. Uh, and there's a Warner Archive DVD. Definitely worth tracking down. Enemy of the People.
1: Well, number five is one of your favorite movies. And so we've talked about it many times. We've talked about it... On, it's appeared once on your list. It appeared on uh, for me in the Danny Perry cult movies three, and that is Over the Edge, directed by Jonathan Kaplan, nineteen
0: seventy nine. Kid who tells on another kid, <laughs>
2: it's
1: a dead kid. Oh! I don't know how many of us
2: are willing to admit just how deep in trouble some of the kids in the city are.
3: Tension is rising.
2: And you people talk about these kids like they're a bunch of animals. <laughs>
3: Tempers are raging.
2: Your son and some of his friends are part of this. My son and his friends are part of this town.
3: Time is running out, and something's got to explode
1: truly a great movie like i don't know why it's a number five there's no real reason in this next like four it's it's one of the best films i discovered this year Uh, absolutely it's uh you know bored teenagers rebelling against authority and new granada uh it's it's really got some of the best teen performances ever put on film uh matt dylan's first role he's incredible Uh, and just so real you know Uh, it feels dangerous at every point you know I think I talked about on that show it reminds me of the it doesn't remind me of kids but it reminds me of what kids felt like when I saw it for the first time for that time period it reminds me of that feeling of being dangerous of being authentic to the voices uh, and also just being a really compelling story and and it totally delivers I mean it's you know these teenagers uh, rebel against authority and and then you you know a major sequence towards the end is locking all the parents and uh, you know, uh, cops and everyone inside this kind of uh, uh, conference, or you know, one of those what what, what would you call those uh, meetings where people are freaking out?
0: Yeah, it's like a town. It's like a town, town hall, hall meeting, but yeah. but it's it's held at the school in their auditorium, basically.
1: Yeah, and the young people freaking lock them in and then start blowing up cars. I mean, it's to see a movie that like delivers on that premise goes from quite a small movie to like ending in a place of just it's just really impressive and rare, uh, the authenticity of voice. And this Tim Hunter, I believe, wrote it, right? One of the writers?
0: Yeah, Tim Hunter and, oh, dang it, I can't remember. Charlie Haas, I think, is the other guy?
1: Yeah, I just bring up Tim Hunter just because, you know, obviously he's he's kind of always had his pulse on that youth.
0: Yeah, it would be a great pairing with River's Edge, which is for his sure, film. Sure, for sure. Um, those are fantastic movies. But, yeah, Over the Edge, one of my all-time favorites a movie that has grown on me every single time I've watched it and is, like you say, so authentic, very gritty in terms of the way that the kids talk to each other, the way that they treat each other. Yeah, and an incredible Matt Dillon performance. He's got such a rawness to him that obviously we would come to recognize in later performances, but it's really just let loose in this movie, and he is spectacular. Um, But, yeah, it's it's so good. It's and you know, uh Kaplan, Jonathan Kaplan directed White Line Fever, which I mentioned earlier in this episode. He directed Truck Turner. I really like him a lot, but Over the Edge is for sure his masterpiece as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, that's definitely on my li- of my list today if you haven't still haven't seen that one and you listen to the show. This is now the third time it has been mentioned <laughs> in the exe- which means you must see it. Uh
0: it's it's time. Yeah. Fully PCP yeah. approved. Um and speaking of which I think you were a fan of this one too Uh, my number five spot is uh, a movie we talked about uh, in this part of the I think part one of the 80s cult episode maybe it was part two I can't remember which one it was in but it's Walking the Edge
2: Walking the Edge in a violent city
3: Family torn apart, a woman needs to settle the score.
2: If he was pushing drugs to young kids, maybe he deserved it, but Danny was my baby, my son.
3: He was an easy-going man, a nice guy, with unfulfilled dreams, who's been pushed too far. you pick up and deliver, otherwise keep your friggin' mouth shut, is that clear? My friends don't talk to me that way. I think I'm tired of getting pushed around. A man and a woman, two strangers brought together by chance, held together by fate. They were one step ahead of sudden death.
0: Uh, I think from 1983, although it's listed a couple different ways in terms of maybe 85 is when it came out. I'm not sure. But um, it stars Robert Forster, uh, who we love, as a cabbie who basically gets pulled into this sort of gang fight a little bit where like he drives this woman whose uh, husband has been killed by some... Some gang folks led by Joe Spinell.
1: Wait, they're not. Yeah, they're not gang folks. They're Joe Spinell's gang.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, they're not gangs in the sense of that, but that they work with Joe Spinell and and they've killed her husband, and she goes and kills somebody. Oh,
1: well, and no, no, and her son. That's the fucked up part. Yeah. Because That's this right, must yeah. be right after or before Vigilante, because I feel like it had a lot of the same cast. Okay, after. so it had the similar casting because it had Foster and Forster and uh, Spinell, but it also had uh, a similar scene where a child is sh- killed with a shotgun, and both in both movies, it's pretty shocking. Vigilante more so for sure, yeah. but it's interesting. There's a lot of parallels between those two, uh, the setups of the films. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know there's things about this I prefer to vigilante and there's things about vigilante I prefer to this but um they definitely go well together and it's a good force to roll but yeah he, it's more
1: fun it's way more fun yeah, than vigilante is bleak I think vigilante definitely. might be a better movie yeah. in court marks in terms of like the story but I think this is like fun and unique and kind of kind of surprisingly wild in the way it goes yeah
0: yeah no but it's it's fully a revenge movie fully a vigilante movie uh but it it sort of takes a roundabout way getting there and i don't know it's just it's it's got a lot of uh cool bits for Forster to play um he becomes involved with the woman who i just love that she took a cab to go murder somebody i think that that's really funny
1: <laughs> No, it's a great scene where she's like, just wait here. And he's sitting, sitting there. It's kind of like, I guess, the first collateral. I guess Michael Mann's collateral yeah. would double feature pretty nicely <laughs> with this one. Because she literally says, just there wait here. here. The first one, she kills someone the second time. She's like, wait here, but I might not come back. And he's like, what? And yeah. then she's trying to take out, take them all out. But Spinell's got some really fun scenes, too. There's, There's some interesting he weird does. scenes between the... The bad guys in this film, but there's one part of it that sticks out like a weird th- sort of thrum, but it makes me like the movie more, but it just is not at all believable. It's that they hang out at like a new wave punk club and it's like they do not look like the gang who hang out at, especially Spinel. It's so bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but it's got a lot of weird things about it that don't, and it feels I guess it's an independent film, I think. It definitely feels a little out of its time. It feels yeah. like it belonged to like six years earlier, in the end of the seventies, not really the early eighties, it or, or right around no, right around Death Wish, I guess makes sense, but it does feel a little late in in that canon, I guess. Uh, that's why it's so kind of so unusual. But Forster feels like he's almost impro- improvising a lot of the time, and if and that makes it really fun. And uh, and Nancy Kwan's an interesting presence for him to be on screen with because they're like really different types of actors.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, yeah, it's 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 really a neat one. It's it's not that well-known. This one we were turned on to by our friend John Hertzberg, who works at Kino Lorber. Um, I believe he programmed this. I forget which theater in New York. I think he came out to the New York as well. Oh, did he with it? Okay, my bad. No, I mean, you think
1: it was in New York, but I think me and you missed him coming out here. He was going to play it or something. I think that was the story.
0: Yeah, so um, kudos to our friend John, because I had been vaguely aware of it. It got a DVD release from uh, Anchor Bay, in the I want to say early 2000s but it's been out of print for some time I actually tracked it down on eBay but it hasn't gotten a DVD or Blu-ray release since then I think you might still be able to rent it from Netflix DVD I feel like they had a copy of it still circulating you know probably like you know four or five months ago it might not still be present there but um so this one might take a little searching to get hold of, but it's definitely worth a look. It's it's a neat little sort of lost uh, gem, as it were. And if you're Forster fans like we are, it's kind of a must.
1: Well, it, it reminds me a little bit of, not in tone, but just another lost largely lost um one hollywood harry that i mentioned back on our tarantino episode yeah. with jackie brown because that's that's i mean that's this is a probably a better film but hollywood harry's really fun character again by forster and uh, that's a, another film that with no real release so you know his star could shine a little brighter i mean now he's getting the respect because he's getting cast so much in small roles and he's fantastic in the new twin peaks but um he's an actor who was still doing you know some quality roles in a period that a lot of people just haven't seen the films but yeah that one would have been on my list uh 100%. I only left it off to fit on more movies. Um, I think it was definitely one of the fun uh, discoveries. Thanks for lending me that.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. That is Walking the Edge. Yep.
1: Um, my number four is one of the, on a style level, one of the best things I saw this year, and that is uh, from, I believe it's Germany, not Austria, but Der Fahn. <laughs> Uh, directed by Eckhart Schmidt from 1982. Uh, this was on our Cult Films of the 80s episode, uh, a film I'd heard quite a lot about, I believe. I'm going to give this one credit to uh, Ke- Kayla Janice's book House of Psychotic Woman, which is where I've actually discovered at least a handful of movies that I've grown to really become favorites. The book is very much on my wavelength in terms of uh, the kind of movies it's about. Um, I guess it's often about hysterical woman in those books. But uh, this is, you know, uh, early 80s. Uh, about an obsessed teenage girl just very typical really initially obsessed teenage girl who's obsessed with a rock star and you know non-stop listening to their music looking at all the posters on their wall Uh, but slowly we see her obsession runs a little deeper and she you know every day accosts the mailman waiting for you know fan mail to be returned and uh and then the film takes a really interesting turn you know when she actually goes to a concert and Behind the scenes, actually does get to meet him, and he notices her more than any of these other girls who come up to him. He actually, you know, really kind of um, zooms in on her. He's played by an actual real uh, New Wave uh, German musician, which is a really nice touch, so his music's actually being used in it. And um, her obsession, you know, they kind of spend a night together, and uh, she thinks it's love, and he makes it clear that it's just, no, it's just, like, this is what we do on the tour. He's not particularly mean for a musician. I think it's fairly typical to the expectations and it is not okay with her and then her obsession g- kicks up to that next notch and it becomes uh, a very very graphic and very disturbing movie it isn't it isn't just single white female level obsession it, it kicks up to um you know uh, the shockers uh, one of those films that truly shocks and it's it's really kind of perfectly made um, and I only just, I don't think I talked about it when we did the cult films of the 80s, but it really dawned on me that in a lot of ways, this is a precursor to, um, both the style and kind of themes of Michael Haneke, um, because even just the way it's shot reminds me of his work and kind of the kind of perfection, uh, to, to his friends. So it's interesting that it's, you know, another, uh, German film that, uh, precedes his work and I, and I really can see the similarities between this and some of the stuff he's done. Uh, but it's, it's great. And this was, um, what is that company called? It's not Rara. Mondo Macabre? Mondo Macabre, yeah. And I, I bought this one, you know, relatively blind besides what I had read in this book and it really delivers on a style front yeah obviously not for everyone because it's truly is pretty shocking and disturbing some of the images uh in the last act of the film but it's also it feels re- it feels right I, I believe everything i'm seeing even though it's somewhat more allegorical um it you i think it's i think it's a tremendous bizarre uh flick
0: very nice i um i bought this one based on your recommendation and a few other people around the time that that Blu-ray came out is getting a whole lot of praise. And I was like, okay, I got to get that another one. I just haven't gotten to watch yet, but I definitely will at some not point. Not a
1: good date movie. Bad date movie. Yeah. <laughs> it just has that vibe where it's like, nope, not a date movie. <laughs> good to know. Depending who you're dating, I guess. I um, you know. I I, I, suppose, I should be careful yeah. saying that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. um, so my next one my number 4 spot is a movie that I mentioned on our Carpenter Part 2 episode I paired this one with vampires it is Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter from 1974
2: in the 18th century in Central Europe a black terror swept across the face of the land the curse of vampirism, which had been a half-forgotten memory for hundreds of years, returned with a fury that struck unholy fear into the hearts of every man, woman, and child. One man dared to make a stand against this evil epidemic. One man dared to hurl a challenge of cold steel against the terror of the undead. He was Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. It is commonly supposed that a vampire attacks in only one way, by biting the neck and draining the victim of blood. The girls you spoke of, they were not drained of blood, but of youth, of life itself. You see, he's been bitten on the mouth. For God's sake, I survived
4: the vampires. By the key is not the man you are. I'm doomed. My soul, a never ending torment. I'm... Kill me!
0: Kill
4: me! I
1: still need to see it, damn it. I'm excited to see that one.
0: It's good. It's it's um I can't remember if it's technically a hammer movie or not. No, I'm blanking on that. I should have looked that up. But um it is of that sort of period, and it feels like that sort of a movie. Um, it's it's kind of like part Western, part uh, swashbuckler, part vampire movie. It's got all these elements. Uh, this Captain Kronos character, you know, has made it his mission to sort of seek and hunt out vampires. And so he has like an Igor type guy that comes with him as he goes from town to town, kind of looking for vampires. And there's a really fantastic scene Uh, in a bar which really has nothing to do with vampires where he comes in after some uh, local um, bullies basically have been beating up on this guy for I can't remember if they're trying to take money from him or what they're trying if they're just generally harassing him I forget what it is but it's one of those things where you have we've already seen that Kronos is quite good with a sword and that he's very capable and then you see these bullies start to engage him and fuck with him and you're like, oh fuck, this is not going to go well for them. And uh, it's just one of those great scenes and how he deals with it is particularly violent and impressive and that was the scene where I was like, yep, I'm totally in on this movie and I fucking love it. And there's just a lot of great uh, vampire stuff too where they're, you know, it's not quite postmodern exactly, but they're sort of thinking in the way that you know, more modern day vampire hunters might think uh, while still being a little antiquated because of the time period. It's like, you know, I forget when this is taking place, but it's, it's a lot of fun and I liked it a lot. And uh, it, it's definitely of this period, one of my favorite vampire movies that I've seen. I was just really impressed with it. Also, highly available streaming and stuff. If you want to check it out.
1: Was that Twilight Time?
0: No, I just saw this one streaming actually. I don't know if, if this has a Blu-ray, it might have it overseas, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't right now. Uh, so I'm hoping that somebody puts it out on Blu-ray at some point because it's definitely worthy of that and could use the attention. Uh, this is one that I think I discovered because of Dennis Casaglio, who runs uh, Sergio Leone and the Infield Fly Roll film blog, which I've been a fan of for a long time. I feel like he put it on either a discoveries list or a favorite horror films list. No, I think it was a favorite horror films list. And this was, you know, not quite 10 years ago, but it's been a long time. And I've been meaning to check it out, uh, since then it is a hammer films production. So it, it, of the hammer movies, this is, you know, top, you know, three or four for me. It's, it's a lot of fun.
1: And you're like the third person, I think this year who has given it that kind of a for me. Uh, Rob might be one, um, and somebody else, uh, it might have been Panos Cosmatos. Uh, oh, nice. I, I feel like this is a movie he had discussed. Um, maybe it's that I heard Ben Wheatley was a huge fan of this one. Uh, maybe that he was even remaking it at one point. Um, oh, but anyway, yeah, so it's it's definitely high on my list to, to check out as well. Um, my number three is is really one of my other truly favorite discoveries of the year, one I'd been meaning to get to for about a decade because one of my good friends uh, discovered it, and uh, Alex uh, Greenhoff, and he loves this one from New Zealand. Uh, it was called To Find a Man, directed by Buzz Cullick from 72.
2: This friend of mine from school met this guy in Puerto
0: Rico. And now she's going to have a baby. So what we need to do is... To find a man Well, you can tell your friend that I just don't happen to know where she can find a nice, friendly abortionist.
1: Just an utterly delightful, um, feels like a Hal Ashby, almost vibe um, film uh, that was just unfortunately really hard to see for a long time. No physical disc. It is, uh, luckily for me, a, a pretty nice version ended up coming on to Amazon. Which is well worth seeing. It's like, um, you know, pretty much a platonic friendship uh, between a couple uh, old. They're neighbors and they've been friends for a long time. They're totally different schools now. She's at a, the girls, Pamela Sue Martin, who's just really great in this, is at a Catholic school for girls. Uh, Darren O'Connor's the boy and he's just like the perfect teenage kid who's just so believably a teenager and not a movie teenager. Like he's just the real teenager uh, with the glasses and the the pimples and the extreme lust for his friend, uh, even though he probably wouldn't really, uh, you know, love her in that way. Uh, and it's really about him trying to be there for her to help her get an abortion because she got knocked up on a on a holiday with her family. And it starts with just really hilarious sequence of her trying to get rid of it with some very funny uh, ideas by the other Catholic schoolgirls. And then she comes home and he kind of says, all right, I'm going to help you through this and help you figure this out and, and it's just, you know, this kind of, these kind of simple scenes of the two of them together and, you know, she doesn't really notice him beyond just being a friend, but he obviously is always kind of uh, lusted after her and maybe initially thinks by do, helping her with this it might leverage something there and then you see how those feelings change through the course of the film and uh, it also has a, her dad is played by Lloyd Bridges and he's fantastic in the couple scenes he's in It's it's just a really uncommonly uh, real. I feel like not exploitive. It's not exploitive, and like I love John Hughes films, but they also are kind of exploitive of the, the that nostalgia of that feeling of the eighties. There's nothing in this that is heightened in that way, particularly. Um, and it's it's a real gem. Real shame that it's not easily uh accessible. I if I was Criterion, I would love to have a film like this to put out because I'd be like a lot of people would be surprised, and probably ninety percent of people haven't heard of it.
0: Yeah. Um friend of the show Larry Karaszewski does a great trailers from hell on it mm. and I think you picked it for the romance episode wasn't that was that? the one, yeah, because I thought out? it was a, yeah
1: because I liked that it was kind of anti-romance and this is what real romance is you know helping a friend someone you love even though you're not going to end up with them probably so
0: yeah that was a great pick and and that's one of our lesser downloaded shows definitely go back and listen to the romance episode we were really happy with uh, our picks on that one so um you know Valentine's Day is just around the corner Worth a listen if you haven't heard it. Yeah, I nice um, My next one was one that was really neat for me because I'd been meaning to see it for a long time and I got to watch it with my dad hmm. when he was out uh, earlier this year. It was just me and him hanging out and I was like, Dad, what about this Paul Newman movie? And he'd never seen it either and he's a big Paul Newman fan. He had shown me a bunch of Paul Newman movies. He loves The Verdict. That's a big favorite for him. Yeah, brilliant. So this is... The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, ah, yeah. 1972, directed by uh, another PCP favorite, John Huston.
2: So what are you doing there in the middle of nowhere, digging a hole? My grave! When well, that wheel come off my wagon, and I took for a sign. This here's my dying ground.
5: There'll be no illegal dying. The only people that die in my town are those that I shoot or hang. Get along with me. Can't die here. Can't die there. Man can't even die
0: where sees fit no more. I want no part of what this world's come to and I'm glad my days are to name. And um, it's, a, it's a wacky story, man. It's about like this sort of outlaw and self-appointed lawmaker slash judge uh, played by Newman who sort of rules over an empty area of the West that starts to grow and grow and he just has these weird theories about law and weird. He's got like a group of people helping him and they worship, uh, this actress named Lily Langtree. They have a poster of her in the saloon slash courthouse. Um, it's a strange character and he makes a lot of strange declarations. There's a great scene or several scenes with him and a a trained bear that like he's friends with, um, I, 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 it's really hard to even encapsulate, except that to say that it's uh, over a, a, a number of years it takes place and you just sort of see him spouting a lot of great dialogue. I believe it was written by John Milius, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Um,
1: um, Milius and Houston's are very a combo.
0: Yes, and it is that movie, but it's, it's certainly weirder than you would think a movie from those two would be in terms of just the eccentricities of this character but it's played incredibly well by Paul Newman you know on the level of you know Butch Cassidy but uh and this is only like 3 or 4 years after that but he's playing like a much older guy than even Butch feels like for some reason and and he he's able to pull it off it's it feels yeah I don't know it feels of a different um not actor necessarily but it's just so different in that way uh, but I was really impressed with it. This one came out on Blu-ray from Warner Archive this year and uh, it was just a really fun time to watch with my dad. There's uh, a great supporting cast including Ned Beatty, Anthony Perkins, Roddy McDowell, Bill McKinney, Tab Hunter, Stacey Keach has a great like one scene thing that he does. Uh, John Houston himself is in the movie. He's got a great scene. Ava Gardner plays Lily Langtree Richard Farnsworth is in it. There's a few others, but man, it's packed with good people, and it's uh, it's quite memorable. Definitely worth looking up. Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean.
1: Yeah, that's uh, for some reason in my brain that was a Robert Altman film. (laughs) I've no. It could have been. Yeah, it almost
0: feels like it could have been.
1: What's his crazy sci-fi film he made with? Paul Newman um quintet quintet which I was a little underwhelmed by, when I finally tracked that one down that was one of those when it was almost too cold and austere for me um I mean I only saw it on VHS though I, I never saw a good version so I'd be curious to revisit but um but interesting yeah no I, I definitely got to see that then I, I definitely have seen imagery from it. him wearing a kind of a hat right he's always wearing like a bowler hat or something in that one
0: I can't I think so yeah okay
1: okay I did there's an image in my mind of it uh cool now I gotta put that one on my list um My number two. This is, man. I I just this film really shook me, and it left it left marks, and I I keep thinking about it more than any film I really discovered this year. Uh, And it is thanks to this discovery comes from the New Beverly calendar. I didn't actually get to see it at the New Beverly, but it was on a calendar about a year and a half or two years ago and it was one of those I think it was one of the exploitation nights they do and I couldn't make it so I I saw the and I might have seen the trailer but I definitely looked it up after I saw the title and I started just becoming interested in it and that is uh, Short Eyes directed by Robert M. Young 1977 based on the play by uh, Miguel Pinero
5: You listen and you listen good because I'm only going to say it once This is a nice Quiet floor. You never had too much trouble on this floor. With you, I smell trouble. Why the warden or the captain put you here, I don't question their motive. But for once, I'm gonna ask why they put a sick, fucking degenerate like you on my floor. If you look at me from the side, if you talk from the side of your mouth, if you mispronounce my name, if you pick up more food than you can eat, if you undersleep, if you oversleep, if you call me when I think it's unnecessary, I'm gonna bust your fucking face up so bad your own mother ain't gonna know you. Isn't this being kinda hard? Shut up! My eight-year-old daughter was molested by one of these bastards, and i just as well pretend that it was you, Davis.
1: Sure uh man this this movie is powerful and it, and it sticks with you in terms of like group dynamics. Uh it was on our prison episode. Uh and I'm sure I was probably pushing a prison episode just so I could <laughs> have an excuse to to watch this and uh, talk about civil danning movies, but uh this uh this is this is a tough one. It's definitely not not a feel good uh movie. It's definitely not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but i i think it's utterly fascinating i'm actually looking forward to watching it again it's it's a a young guy is thrown into um uh, the infamous tombs prisons in new york which are underground prisons uh particularly rough and that's played by bruce davison and uh before he enters the world you see all the different kind of you know kind of the racial segregation of the of the ward uh the different factions how they work together uh, how music is kind of a big part of how people interact and you know which who to watch out for, who who is gonna try to um turn you out, you know, in, in the in the showers. You just see all these different kind of complex relationships and then they throw on this Bruce Davidson who just looks like this he looks like a, a stockbroker, basically, and he's totally out of place. Uh and uh the white the white kind of power type guys, which are the smallest group of this group, kind of take him under their wing in the first few minutes just purely based on the surface and then very quickly, once the charges are announced, uh, you you find out what a short eyes is, which is um, a person who has eyes for short people, which is a child molester, and you know it, it changes the dynamics. You always hear that story about prisons that people go to go there don't last long, and that this really is about that. But it's also about there's a beautiful, like well, truly one of the better performances I've seen this year by Jose Perez in this film, who's trying to understand it. Um, even though he doesn't really want to know. And he's kind of just one of those guys who kind of gets along with everyone in the prison and kind of holds the peace to an extent. And at a certain point, him and Bruce Davidson start talking and Davidson just needs to get it out. And it's it's just one of the most emotionally... um, interesting and complex scenes i've seen all year even though it's hard to watch because of the topic but the movie itself it's 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 tough as nails and i'd be curious to know and probably i could find out uh from phil but i'd be curious to know who who programmed this originally if it was actually a tarantino pick which which it probably was um it's it's pretty remarkable film and there is a blu-ray of it um i only wish i could have seen it as a play back when uh Pinero was putting it on because i've heard from a friend of mine uh that it was astounding like as a live thing just like crazy and dangerous
0: i could only imagine what that would be like yeah to see live that'd be nuts man Mm. um yeah it's an incredible performance by bruce davison hard to watch a movie that's tough to get through but the performance is again you mentioned authenticity before with over the edge it's definitely that uh emotional um raw it's it's remarkable. Uh, I think some of the crazy. actors
1: were. I think some of them were actually criminals or ex-criminals. Curtis Mayfield's thrown in there. Freddie Fender, the musician. They're both. They both are really great in it. And then there's, uh, I I believe one of the stories was like one of the young guys actually had com- committed a murder pretty soon after filming or something really sad. But So you feel that. You feel the weird energy of these types of people. It's it's really one of those movies that kind of shakes you up a bit. Um, and it's always good to be reminded of those kind of things.
0: Definitely. Yeah, that's a good pick. Um, my next one, my number two spot, is one that I watched for our documentaries episode. Hmm. It is from Mr. Frederick Wiseman. Nice. Whose films are now, almost all of them, available on the streaming service Canopy that's K-A-N-O-P-Y, and that is through certain libraries. It's a streaming, like, rentable, digital rentable service, basically, and and not all libraries have it, unfortunately, so that's kind of a bummer, but it is pretty remarkable to have so many of his films as widely available as they are right now because they have not been. You can order them through his website, but for the most part, they are not easily watchable. So to have them all on this library site is pretty fantastic. Um, So this one is The Store from 1984, I think.
3: There's one word to the whole reason for it all. I mean, sales. A simple little word, and that's why we have the building, why we have, you know, if we were doctors if we were doctors we would have a doctor's office and the only reason for us being there would be for people to come in with something wrong with them for us to look at them and for us to cure them and that would be our purpose for being doctors if we were undertakers we would be there waiting for a body to come in the body would be brought in we'd do things to it we'd dig a hole we'd put them in it if we were car mechanics we'd wait for cars to come in and we'd fix them and when we were finished we'd give the car back and that would be our purpose but we're in Neiman Marcus for one reason, one reason only. It doesn't matter if we're Phil Miller who's president, or, or, if, or if we're we're sweeping the floor, or whatever we are, whatever capacity we have, there's really one purpose to our being at Neiman Marcus, one, one grand purpose, and that's to make sales, because it's an institution created to make sales. You know, we're not a place to come in and get out of the rain, we're not a place to come uh, visit and socialize, we are those things also. But with all of that, we only have one purpose in life. So when we do what we're here for, we're doing what we do well. If we, if we don't do that well and if we don't encourage that, and if we don't eat and sleep that as a purpose, that, then we're defeating our purpose. If we were doctors and we were sitting there to sort of meet new friends and make uh, acquaintances and, and have a nice time, we wouldn't be very good doctors if that's all we did. We can do all of that with being good doctors if we were that. But we're not that. We're, we're salesmen. But Neiman Marcus is a selling institution. And every morning when you wake up and you enter this building until the minute you leave at night, that's the only purpose we have in life. Now, how we do it and why we do it is what distinguishes us from everybody else.
0: And it is about a Neiman Marcus store, their corporate headquarters in Dallas. And... So it goes through like the whole process and all levels of this department store from selection, presentation, marketing, pricing, advertising, and selling just this incredible array of products, all kinds, including designer clothes and furs, jewelry, perfumes, shoes, electronics, sportswear, china, porcelain. I mean, it goes through the whole store in a lot of ways and deals with different people that sell different kinds of things and the meetings behind the scenes about how to handle both uh, marketing and customers. And it's, it's just a really intimate portrait of this place. And I mean, that's what Frederick Wiseman could do so well was to just sort of put the camera down. And obviously it's not totally objective. He's editing the thing. And so you're getting certain things from his point of view, but it's, Pretty neat to see all, all these people relatively unguarded in terms of their behavior. And it's just a, a wonderful document of both the store itself, the time period, the people, both the customers and the employees. It was absolutely mesmerizing to me and one of my favorite things. Well, obviously, one of my favorite discoveries of the year, but one of my favorite things to get a chance to finally watch for the documentary episode. So um, it's highly recommended. You can check it out through Canopy. You can buy it through Frederick Wiseman's site. Definitely worth a look. It's the store. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's one I haven't seen, but now hearing it so high up on this particular list, I've got to see it. I, I, I Follies obviously connects quite a lot to uh my last pick in terms of like like you know seeing inside a prison or a mental ward in a way where you're like i can't you can't even believe what you're really watching but that film was banned for a long time so you know he's such a versatile filmmaker because he just he puts his eye on any topic you know he's willing to look at anything and bring that very even uh viewpoint so yeah i got to see that one um my number one is uh literally my favorite screening of the year that i went to uh, and it was a film i hadn't seen yet and it was also just the best presentation of any film i saw this year uh it was the nitrate print screening of carol reed's the fallen idol from 1948
2: there's no need to mention to mrs baines that you met julie is it a secret that's right phil our secret Can't go on like
3: this. You want your freedom?
2: You must come, you promised you would. We'll have the whole day together. You know all about them. They're not the child you pretend to be.
1: Why did you run away, Philip?
2: Because of secrets.
1: Excellent. Uh I, I've yet to see a Carol Reed film I didn't love. And I mean that. Like I've loved every film I've ever seen of his. Um, and this one was no different. I think it was the night before me and you saw the um, black narcissus, uh, nitrate print. Very cool. Um, and this one impressed me even more. This uh, again, it's black and white, so the nitrate's a little um, clearer with what you're watching. But this is one also incredibly, an incredibly suspenseful movie. Um, and it's uh, basically it's about uh, this young uh the young son of a diplomat, uh in England. Uh, he's a French diplomat, and he completely idolizes uh his father's butler who holds this house uh together whose name is Baines played by Ralph Richardson in one of the just great roles and uh he's the Baines character is always kind of regaling the kid with stories of heroism and how he used to you know fight in Africa and you know just stuff that you know as a viewer is probably not true because he is the butler after all but the kid completely believes it and and they have such a great beautiful relationship um and at a certain point uh the kid re- kid witnesses that uh he, that Baines is having a an affair with a much younger woman and his his wife who also is part of the house is also quite an kind of awful and particularly kind of cruel to the boy uh so there's not a lot of love lost there and uh the film builds to and I, i'm going to you know spoiler if you really don't want to know this but it happens still pretty early in the movie so just warning you know fast forward a few seconds uh you know it builds in the first part to uh an accidental death that the boy witnesses something that he uh he interprets the wrong way and then the rest of the film becomes he tries to cover up and help his friend because he loves him so much, even though he believes that Baines is guilty of this, uh, even though we as the audience know he is not. And it creates an incredible suspense in the last uh, half of this film. And it's, it's an utterly remarkable piece of filmmaking. He 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 really more than any director in the last few years. Carol reads stuff every time somebody introduces me to another one. I um I obviously talked about one that Monty Elman had put me onto Outcast of the Island, which also just blew me away. And then you have the obvious of Third Man and Odd Man Out, which are just masterpieces. So this film really you know especially when it's really just about a boy's relationship to a butler. You know it doesn't it doesn't sound like much but it also it taps into also quite a lot of what's in what and i would say this would be a shared number one spot with passionate friends if i was really looking at the two i I think i like them equally um but the best stuff in fallen idol is actually the similar stuff to passionate friends which is uh baines's relationship with this other woman and hearing their conversations about how they're going to proceed and what to do and 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 really seeing how what a different guy he is when he's around her versus who he has to be around his wife who's very dominant and uh, i i find that kind of drama just totally intoxicating um but the surprising part is that it's also a suspense picture and and it really works as such um yeah this is this is a tremendous movie uh and seeing it in a nitrate i just feel so i feel very lucky to get to see a film that its you know the best possible way you can um, so yeah if you haven't seen this one I would definitely track it down definitely I, I, I'm sure it's considered you know in England like you know one of, one of their masterpieces but for me it was I'd heard the title I just had never uh, seen the film but it's from 48
0: yeah I'm jealous of that nitrate screening that's a great great movie that uh, I have on Criterion DVD but they haven't yet upgraded to blu-ray and i hope they do at some point because yeah it's pretty fantastic i might prefer it to any other carol reed movie including the third man personally
1: well i think it maybe, and and i think third man to me is such a masterpiece it's hard for me to Necessarily jump into that equation, but I do think where where the difference is the the emotional relationship is is just really great. It's it's better than most father son movies, and it's the yeah. butler and this kid, and and you know especially when the kids' parents are diplomats, so you know they're away a lot, and so because of that, you you would forge these other relationships, and I think it really nails. That viewpoint, um, man, it's it's really, it's a tremendous movie. And Ralph Richardson is so good. The, again, another actor who's one of the most famous actors of all time, especially British stage actor, who I just wouldn't have necessarily known why he's such a great actor. And then this is one of those roles where you're like, okay, <laughs> that's why. Because he's able to show so many different sides of this one character.
0: Yeah, great performance. Um, all right, well, my last one is a big inspiration for one of my favorite Coen Brothers films and that's Miller's Crossing this is uh The Glass Key Mm. from 1942 I have seen that one yeah
2: you don't like me do you Mr. Beaumont I think I do I'm pleased even with such qualified approval
3: why are you pleased
2: for some obscure reason I think you're very nice
3: so obscure reason.
2: I'd hoped you'd help me find Taylor's murderer.
3: Do I look like a guy that runs down murders?
2: You look as though you could. I'm sure you can tell me one thing I want to know. What? Did Paul kill him?
0: No. Yeah, this came out. Uh, on Blu-ray from I want to say Masters of Cinema no ah shoot I can't remember it's overseas uh, somewhere but it is getting a domestic release from Shout Factory uh, in January so folks can pick it up there it is a Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd movie their most famous collaboration I think is This Gun for Hire which is also good but I definitely prefer The Glass Key it's got Brian Dunleavy and Joseph Kalia, William Bendix. There's a few other recognizable faces in it, but it's totally that sort of vibe of the uh, Gabriel Byrne character in *Miller's Crossing*, where you're playing one gang against the other, and it's—I mean—they really took liberally from this story. I think it's—I think it's Dashiell Hammett. Uh, I may be misremembering the writer. That it's based on, but um, you'd be surprised when you watch it just how much its influence can be felt in Miller's Crossing, not to the point where you won't enjoy the movie because you know where it's going, but just in the level of like, wow, this scene is similar, this whole plot point is similar that kind of thing but I really loved it and it was just a great noir for the end of the year and great Veronica Lake performance not a comedic one and I like her in comedies too but she's just kind of conniving in this movie and I like Alan Ladd and he's you know he's he's a slightly different shaded take on the Gabriel Byrne character in Miller's Crossing not necessarily a guy that's all good or all bad. He's kind of in between, but he plays it well and he plays it differently than Gabriel Byrne did. But I was really impressed with it. It was one of those that I thought I had seen because I'd seen, like, The Blue Dahlia and I'd seen This Gun for Hire and I feel like there might even be another uh, Alan Ladd, uh, Veronica Lake movie, but I'm blanking on that right now. But anyway, for some reason I hadn't gotten to it yet and it's easily my favorite of all their collaborations. Definitely the one i would say to start with if if you're going to see any of them uh this is the way to go.
1: Yeah, I had a teacher when I was first getting into Noir show me that one, uh same time as The Killer's Loose and Murder by Contract. Those three I think I saw them all together and all of them blew my mind for different reasons. Uh Murder by Contract, I don't know if that's ever come up on here on on here, but that's another great film. But uh good good yeah. call, man. And and that also you talking about the writer made me realize I had forgotten the key part of the Fallen Idol information, which is it is a screenplay by Graham Green. Yeah. So that if you weren't sold already, I I forget that was a huge part of why it's such a significant film, um, but yeah, so no, those are uh, those are a couple great uh, suspenseful number ones. Yeah, so those are our discoveries. Ten, I'm sure we could have done a handful more uh, great movies we've discovered this year, but those are some uh, some shiners and. I would love to hear from people who are uh, listening when you hear this episode, just uh, t- tweet at us or post on uh, one of the pages just one film you've discovered this year that is you know, blowing you away from this similar kind of time period just because it'll be interesting to see some of the films batted around uh, when you listen to this um one thing we wanted to do that we didn't have time for yet but we're gonna work in just a few real quickly each episode uh of these uh of this uh of our hangout episodes we want to work in some uh, listener questions uh to end just to just to kind of get more in dialogue with you guys um and so brian posted on what was it the pure cinema Facebook group?
0: Facebook group.
1: Right. So it's not our page, but there's actually a group of, of about, what, a thousand plus people who are just using it uh, to positively talk about movies and ha- uh, strike up conversations. Sometimes it's about stuff we're doing, but it's also just got a, a lifeblood of its own. Uh, so, yeah, what are a few that we're just going to kind of whiz through? Well,
0: the first one is from listener Rami Raff, and he says... Uh, which director would you like to direct a movie about your life can be living or dead?
1: Yeah, that's, that's obviously tough. I mean, the hard part about that isn't even the director. It's more like, I don't think my life is a warrant to
0: anyone to direct a movie. Certainly not.
1: But I have, it it was very easy. It didn't even take me a split second to come up with this, which is uh, the best part. And it was uh, Hal Ashby because he's the only director I would trust to direct my life because he is the most, I'd say he's the most humanistic director who's ever uh, existed, at least Western. I think uh, I'd say Ozu uh, from Japan would be very close in terms of that humanism, but uh, I would trust that he wouldn't make me look like an idiot, <laughs> you know. So, uh, but I, I think I think that would be my pick for that reason. No, it's uh you know, I was gonna go with Pasolini, but you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I don't know for some reason uh, Noah Baumbach came to mind uh, for me. I could see that for you, yeah. Yeah, I t- I think it would end up probably being something along the lines of Greenberg. Uh mm-hmm. personally but um <laughs> but anyway so that's totally see that. <laughs> but, but that's yeah. fine. I, I think if I was gonna do it, I would want to show myself warts and all and I feel like that's definitely something he's good at. So um yeah, that that was the one that occurred to me. Nice. Um next up uh, listener Chad Sutter says, As fathers What's been a proud parenting moment sharing films with your kids?
1: Well, you have a much deeper history of this than I do, uh, just in terms of because you've also been podcasting with your daughter, and uh, you know your your stepson obviously has a long history of watching movies together. But uh, for me, because ki- kids are still pretty young and have uh, not watched a lot of live action stuff yet, still been kind of cartoon phase. But a couple weeks ago, had the first real breakthrough where the suggestion was hey we should watch Back to the Future and uh, Dash is 7 and I wasn't sure how that would play with him Uh, and man it went Every I felt like I was seeing it for the first time again. I felt all the things I felt that first time because I hadn't seen it in like 15 years that I saw that in theaters when I was probably only a couple years older than him. I think I, in fact, I think I was eight when I started in a the theater and he every beat landed with him. He understood everything. He was asking time travel conundrum questions to me. I mean, I was I was floored by how everything connected not just a little bit but everything it just shows how great a movie and how great Zemeckis is with that film and then it led to us that weekend watching two and he got just as into two and then three maybe about a week later and he also It made me uh enjoy three because at the time in theaters i remember being a little more lukewarm on it back in the day but watching it again i enjoyed all three so watching the back to the future trilogy uh it's nothing i really feel like i did it's not like a big parental win it was just cool to see uh you know that that first real advancement into live action and into the kind of movies like i'd love to watch ghostbusters he's a scaredy cat though so i don't know if that librarian might be too much for him but um you know, that's the kind of movie I'm excited to see them watch.
0: Nice. No, that's great. Um, I don't know, man. I've had a lot of great stuff with Raven. I'm trying to think if I can isolate any one. Um, I think it was really fun to show her tremors and see her get into that <laughs> as much nice. as she did. To the point where we watched all of them except the fourth one. I think the prequel we still have to watch, but she was quite obsessed with it, and you can see, you can sort of hear her enthusiasm on an episode of Just the Discs that we did where we talked about the Tremors movies and even got uh, to the point where I was tweeting about it and um, one of the listeners, I think he listens to Pure Cinema too, but he definitely, I think, listens to Just the Disc, um noticed that I was tweeting about it and he sent us a copy of his sort of... Um, book about tremors and it goes through all the movies and all this stuff. And Raven was so excited to get that. And so that was really neat. Um, I think that was a big one, but, um, between that and, and showing my son, uh, you know, the early Marx Brothers movies and the Jerry Lewis movies and how much he really embraced that stuff was incredibly touching to me too. So those two things lately have been a well not lately for the Marx Brothers thing that was a while ago but those are big for me
1: yeah i get i i almost every week i get a win like that a feeling like that from teaching cuz i'll I'll show you know 19 year olds movies almost every week that I, I think are significant and, and when they connect and when there's a buzz when people are leaving the room I get that same feeling that I think he's kind of asking about you know when I showed American Movie this week and you, you know when the people are laughing at all and, and connecting you walk out going this is this is great this is the best thing about sharing sharing movies with people so I, I, I know that's a good feeling
0: yeah Um. next up uh, Neil Anderson asks what's a movie you had a strong negative reaction to on first viewing that you've since come around to Mm,
1: that is harder because I, I just think I just forget these things a lot of the time. But uh, I'll recite the the two by the same director, and they're I saw them pretty close. Uh, were and I've talked about it on the show before. Crash is probably the, by Cronenberg. Not the other, Crash is probably the biggest. Like I really had a strong visceral i don't like this reaction in the theater to that movie like it it grossed me out in a way it got to something in me it got under my skin and, and made me feel a little uh not not great uh and yet watching it again a couple years after i i really think it's one of his best movies <clears throat> and it's and it really just it's you know it's it's very cold but it really worked for me but naked lunch is the other naked lunch i'd read the book and the film was really over my head and you know when the typewriter's bug, buggering the guy my brain was just like you know i was probably 16 so You know the movies just didn't connect, and then I saw that again when Criterion put it on. I was like, "This is a great movie." So it's obviously something with Cronenberg's like literary adaptations (laughs) that that have uh, you know uh, penetration uh, uh, with uh, mechanical objects. I guess uh, is (laughs) is is the one is the one (laughs) constant that obviously takes me a while to come around to, but but come around I did.
0: Nice. Um, Well, I'll touch on it in a future episode. But um, Mean Streets was one for me that I didn't love initially, and each successive time I've seen it has gotten better and better and better. And now I think it's one of Scorsese's best, and I'm glad I came around to it. It's just definitely one that I wasn't ready for at the time I first saw it. So uh, that will be
1: that will be in only two weeks' time. Yes, <laughs> indeed. You'll be talking about that.
0: <laughs> yes, and uh, next up, um, Michelle Egan asks. Um, maybe it's just a term, but what would you say really defines being a cinephile? I feel like I can't quite call myself one yet, so I just use cinephile in training. Would you say that there is a certain amount of knowledge about cinema that goes into it, or is it just being about having a deep love for all things movies?
1: Yes um i would say to her last part i think it's someone i don't think it's anything to a snobbery or knowledge i think it's the actual act of dedication to cinema it's that dedication to filling all your free time in watching films thinking about films making lists about films it's that pursuit of film not the destination of film it's not the destination of knowledge like it's not to have seen it all it's the I can't not pursue and keep watching and if you have that drive you're a cinephile it doesn't matter if you're a dumb cinephile a smart cinephile what, what your education level is what your what your taste is how much you've seen already no, or much, I think that's, that I think it's all redundant I think it's just that that's what you want to fill you, yourself with and if, that, and if that's the case that's what you are that would yeah. be my 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 read.
0: Yeah, and I'd say she's done some lists for Rupert Pupkin speaks. Actually, I recommend people check them out. Uh, she definitely qualifies uh, for sure. Uh, a very passionate film fan. So. But yeah, I I think we make
1: it official tonight. We're going to give her PCP. You are a PCP approved cinephile. No longer Um, in training. You're not in training. (laughs) And that is so uh, take that for what you will.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, And lastly, Mark uh, Juarez asks, uh, and this is a pretty simple one, but I thought we wanted to plug this. So um, do you in any way keep track or log what you watch? And if so, Uh, how and what do you think the best way is to do that
1: man i wish there was a technology that could just do that like an app or something (laughs) especially one from my homeland of new zealand would be really helpful
0: oh my i didn't realize that
1: Oh, you didn't know. You, haven't, didn't know. Uh, you have to read the fine print next time you're on there. It's a company based in Auckland, New Zealand, believe it or not.
0: Very nice, yes. Of course, he's talking about Letterboxed, which I, I think a lot of people we know are on the site, not as if you need another you know, quasi-social media app, which you can use it that way if you like, but you can really just use it as a logging tool. Uh, I've been using it, I want to say, since 2012. Um, maybe that's not quite right. Somewhere in there. it's It's been six or seven years, and so I've logged everything I've watched since that time, and it's incredibly useful, A, just because I'm getting old and I forget things, but B, to keep track of especially discoveries and best theatrical movies of a given year. I There's a list function on there that you can use, which I use all the time, and you can make your list private, so if you would rather have it just for yourself... That's what the majority of my lists are uh, because a lot of them have to do with episodes that we're working on and things that I'd rather not make public until uh, the episode itself is done. Um, but, yeah, I just keep a running tally on Letterboxd of everything I watch and all my discoveries and all my favorite movies of a given year. Uh, I think you are a big fan yourself.
1: Yeah, I don't think I discovered it quite as early as you, but it's definitely been a few years. And um, I just upped because uh, inspired by you to give on the Black Friday sale, they have a, I guess, a next, a next level because obviously it's a free app but there's another level I haven't really discovered what all you get with the free app uh, I mean the paid version except for obviously becoming a patron and supporting it which I feel really good about because it's something I really use um, and also I know the photo the background is up there now which is super cool you get to have like your top four um, I have a couple lists on there that I like I used to use a site called Mubi that I'm a big fan of um, I still really like Mubi but Letterboxd is just a much better app Mubi is more like a place to look at lists and um, you know I actually watch movies, but I have a, a time travel list on there that I rather like in a revenge Uh, a list of revenge films those are two lists that i've made back for that there that i imported and i actually really like those ones and if i have more time someday i think i stopped making as many lists when we started doing the show you know i spent a lot of my time doing that kind of stuff and then in the abstract way and then suddenly we start doing shows where we took our topic every time every week so um but i love letterboxd i think it's probably my favorite app um i don't review movies very i mean i do the star reviews i i basically almost never bother doing the write-up some sometimes i wish i would but the best function on it is the watch list function which is yeah absolutely the best thing about it because it it means if i hear just in passing like if i was listening to this show or another podcast and i heard of a title that i was like shit i need to remember that i would just look it up on letterboxd hit the watch list and then it's saving it to a place for me to go to these are movies i have yet to watch that i want to watch and uh, i have an ever-expanding list on that. And I love that part of the function. Um, I don't really use it for the social media side very much. Um, but there are a few people I follow and I, I like to see what they think of new movies and stuff just because it's a, a shorthand. I, I much prefer it to say rotten tomatoes, you know, on that level because oh, yeah. it's people no. I trust, you know,
0: exactly. It's a much more personal version of that kind of thing. Cause you can see, you can follow, there's a lot of popular critics are on, on the site and you can see kind of what they're thinking about things. But I find, I'm drawn more to friends of mine that I know uh, pretty well and that I know were aligned in certain ways. So certain kinds of movies, I'll be like, oh, what did so-and-so think of this type of genre movie? You know, like, it's it's something along those lines. Um, but yeah, a lot of us are on there. I know Rob G. is on there, and uh, uh, there's just a ton of folks that use it. And I do recommend using it and supporting it. They have two paid levels. There's a pro level, Um, and then there's a patron level. And, yeah, there's just a few extra things you get with the patron level um, that maybe isn't necessarily worth the extra jump in price, but like you say, it feels good to support the site, because for me, if they went away right now, uh, I know you can export your diary, which is what you've been watching, uh, through, like, into some kind of PDF or XML format format, But I would lose all that, and so I'd want this site to stay alive as long as uh, I can have it stay alive. So I recommend anybody and everybody that wants to keep track of their movie watching, Letterboxd is uh, my way, and uh, I think your preferred way to do it. I think it's the best
1: yeah and it's also intuitive and the layout's great and the search function's great so on those levels you know in a lot of ways it's really replaced how much i go to imdb you know which yeah in, in the old days that's all you'd use now i much prefer to go to Letterboxd letterbox just in terms of functionality but um yeah and speaking of patreon obviously we want to thank our patreon uh, supporters it's the same thing like we know it's not just for the extras even though we try to make sure we're consistently giving something uh whether they're new episodes or uh you know uh, monthly blu-ray picks on there but we hope it's uh, also, because you guys uh, want to help support the show and uh, keep us keep us moving, which we really truly do appreciate. Uh, and we want to obviously thank the New Beverly Cinema for uh, uh, their support. And like uh, this is obviously the first month, so that's been super exciting. Uh, and uh, we have something really fun coming up in uh, probably exactly two weeks' time, which is uh, part one of our uh, Scorsese three part series that we're still working on uh, of the films of Scorsese and uh, pairing every one of his films uh, feature films not not documentaries and not anthologies <laughs> which yeah. we're going to have to repeat multiple times so everyone knows we're not watching 200 movies uh, but it's still a big job and there's still a, a lot to go for us on the viewing side but we have part one in the can that we'll be coming to you in a couple weeks and uh, and I think that you'll find just like uh, all our pairing episodes that it's, it's fun to think outside the box with uh, films that speak to uh, his his work and, and it's you know it makes you appreciate a, a, a truly a great American artist artist in a in a new way
0: absolutely yeah we're really proud of uh the first episode that we did of that series just as we're proud of the other directors episodes we've done uh the carpenter two-parter the tarantino the hitchcock definitely if you are starting the show within the past month or so go back and have a listen to uh one or two of those episodes Uh, definitely the carpenter if you're into him seems to be one of our more uh popular episodes the tarantino is very popular just get a sense of uh, what we do with those episodes, and then you'll get a sense of where we're going with this Scorsese thing. But we're very excited about the project. It was a lot of fun so far.
1: Yeah, and so uh, you think, and the main thing is thanks for listening. I mean, I know sometimes if you listen to a podcast, you take for granted that everyone knows about it, but they don't. And so, like, if you could share it or, uh, you know, just let people know that this is a, a show worth their time if they're uh, cinephile and uh, like to discover good films. We we certainly appreciate that, and the growth really helps.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening.
1: And we'll see you in two weeks.
0: Bye-bye.